Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show once again. And today's show is going to be a historical or more like a nostalgic deep dive into uh, into a series or a rivalry that uh, actually transpired in the 80s. And uh, it's West Indies versus Pakistan. Uh, we have planned this episode for more than a year ago. And helping me do the honors are two very able guests, uh, Soheb Alvi making his podcast debut, a known name in Pakistan cricket broadcasting and media uh, assignments, is joining the show. And Vijay Armagam, uh, who's become a regular podcast resident here, assisting me in another episode. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, yeah, good to be here. Absolutely. Enjoying. Yeah, thank you, Saki, for having me uh, over here again. And uh, welcome to the pod, uh, Saheb. Yeah, so... Yeah, as I said, as I said, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I was just looking at the WhatsApp group we created uh, last year, March 5th, 2022. I think day after Shane Vaughan had passed away. So I think uh, a lot of things happened. You know, my life got complicated. You know, you both have busy work commitments. You know, I have a day job. So here we are, like uh, exactly 14, 15 months after uh, we had initiated this conversation, we were actually recording a show. And it's exactly 35 years ago, uh, Imran's team went to uh, the West Indies and drew a series, which is going to be, I think, a big focal point of this rivalry as we, you know, unravel what went on. So before that, uh, I'm going to start with Vijay. Uh, so Vijay, you know, the the cornerstone of this uh, this conversation is the dominant dynasty of the West Indies team started from the Clive Lloyd era all the way to Vivian Richards' retirement. They didn't lose a Test series for 15 odd years, I think. That's uh, in team sports. You you don't you won't find many dominant performances. In the in the in the middle, they also won a couple of cricket World Cups, and they were forced in the ODI format. Uh, back in the day, played mostly with the red ball. They were also doing great in the Benson Hedges series in in Australia. Uh, you know, and they had a great bowling attack. So, just you know, what is your recollection of this team? And uh, then we'll talk about Pakistan as a worthy rival, but. Uh, just let's warm up with West Indies. What do you remember as a young fan? And then you read about the game, about, you know, all these greats like Greenwich and uh, Garner holding Marshall. Floor is yours, just, you know, fire away. What do you recall of that that era, especially with the West Indies? So, Sakib, um, I think for me, uh, the West Indies were the dominant side. When I started to watch cricket in 1985, they were the most dominant side. They were the most popular side. And uh, Vivian Richard was such a, big popular name they had those big fast bowlers so they had a bit of an aura about them and i think before we get started with what west indies legacy and who gray who they were i think let's give a bit of an introduction in terms of who they were right as a because it's not one country because i'm not too sure how many of the younger viewers uh, would know a lot about them so to give a bit of a context west indies is a region uh, in the caribbean which is next to north america and uh, they got about 30 to 14 islands and 18 dependencies in quite a few archipelagos, right? Uh, the, the real point is, a lot of people don't realize this, is 62% of the Caribbean, they speak Spanish. Countries like Cuba, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, and there are islands of Venezuela, etc. 25% of the, um, the Caribbean speaks French. Uh, Guadeloupe, Haiti, Martinique, French Guiana, etc. Only 15% of them speak English. And 5% of them speak Dutch, which is like the Aruba, the Suriname, et cetera. So we're talking about a very small 
I don't know, 38 to 40 million people, out of which only 15% of them speak English. It all depended on who colonized whom, the Spanish, uh, uh, the French and the English and the, or the British and the Dutch. So here, within that, we are talking about Antigua and Barbuda, which is Andy Roberts and Viv Richards, Jamaica, Michael Holding, Courtney Walsh, etc. Trinidad and Tobago, like Brian Lara, you can go back to uh, Lady Constantine, etc. Constantine, Guyana, which is where like you have the Clive Lloyds and Carl Hooper's coming up, and then you have the Grenada, St. Kitts and Nevis, and St. Lucia, etc. So, so we need to understand that there is nothing called West Indies as one country. Each country is separate. They have their own flags. They, they represent Olympics in a different way. Uh, they, they, they play football or athletics you know, for, for their own countries. Given that there's not a lot of unity among them, um, I think I'm told there is a one University of West Indies, even that has got separate campuses in their own countries. It's, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, commonality. But cricket was such a, an important, um, you know, a unifier for them. Now, again, I don't want to go back and talk about history, about how cricket was brought in by the plantation, the owners and the whites and how it was segregation and apartheid. We can get into those things, but again, that's a completely different podcast, right? Uh, so it took even a, long time for a, a, a black person, uh, an Afro-American or Afro-Caribbean to become a captain. And that's why, uh, even before you talk about Clive Lawn and others, there has to be a bit of a context about why Frank Worrell uh, was such an important figure uh, in terms of being a captain, because uh, there was even a time when, um, there was even a time when, like, you know, there, there was only a white person who could captain. And there was a time even each island, because each island represented um, different one, uh, different different country, they had to appoint four captains in the 1930s for four different teams. Like 1930 when England toured, uh, each time MCC played one particular uh, colony as a test match, there was a different captain. And then even the selectors were white. Um, so the only person uh, once it did was uh, Headley, George Headley for one test match. But after that, again, you know, set of like, you know, uh, uh, white captains. So Frank Worrell becoming the captain uh, was such a big thing. And the, one of the one of the things that your viewers viewers might want to know about is in the 1960-61 when the West Indies came and they played that very famous test series against Richie Benner's Australians here in Australia, the famous tight test at the Gabba. When the series got over in Melbourne, they, there was a big ticketed parade uh, when all the players. Uh, travel in an open car and there were on a Monday morning there were thousands of people who were lining up the streets of Melbourne uh, to celebrate this great band of cricketers who came from the Caribbean so I think that's something we need to look at it before we talk about the dominance of West Indies one more thing I want to call out is it was not that Clive Lloyd started off the whole dominance uh, they had won series in England in 1950 um, you know 63 again 66 they've been winning you know in England ever since the 60s uh, so uh, you know, there were Gary Sobers and other great players as well, right? Um, so before we start about Lloyd, there's there's always an argument in the Caribbean um, saying Frank Worrell won nine out of his 15 test matches as a captain. His winning percentage was 60% compared to, say, somebody like Clive Lloyd, who won only 49%, which was like 36 out of 76, 74 test matches. Now, the argument is Frank Worrell had great players like Rohan Kanai, Gibbs, Valentine, Gomez, Ramadin, Sobers, etc. So he had set of very good players and he made them a great team. Well, Lloyd had some really great names. You know, we all know Robert's holding, 
Croft, Ghana, Greenwich, Haynes, Richards, etc. And he made them a great team. So there's even a school of thought in the Caribbean that maybe Frank Worrell was a better captain than Lloyd. But that's for a Caribbean discourse. But now coming back to your topic, this topic is more about the 70s um, and 80s, as I said. Uh, when I grew up, you know, uh, Vivian Richards was a captain. Uh, Lloyd was slightly before my time. Um, so, but I can't reinstate the importance of Lloyd because we tend to look at West Indies as Afro-American or Afro-Caribbean or black player and stuff. But we had to very much understand there was a fair amount of the Indo-Caribbean mix as well, both in Trinidad as well, Trinidad as well as in British Guyana. And Guyana, for your viewers, it's a separate country in the South America. It's not an island. Uh, so the places like uh, Georgetown, where they play cricket that used to play at Boda, or Burbis, Indian fans would remember a very famous place where India won a OD, an ODI game before the 1983 World Cup. So Clive Lloyd's you know, legacy is very important because he grew up in Georgetown in the colonial British era, and he understood the difficulty in relationship between the, the Black Caribbeans and the Indo-Caribbeans, and he played a very, very important role in stitching all of that together. I think, like Frank Worrell, after Frank Worrell, he was seen as the great leader of men who could bring together the various disparate units of the Caribbean, different cultures, different uh, different food, different language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not language so much because they have their own dialects, etc. I think that's very important. Uh, and then Vivian Richards took over a great team, and Vivian Richards was more like leading from the front, a very strong persona. Uh, and uh, his greatness was more from leading the front from the front than a great uni for our men. Um, so that's a context. So given that they were invincible, I'll just throw a few more things before uh, hand it over to you, back to you, Sake. Uh, you know, they, they didn't lose a single uh, test match or test series from 1979-80 in New Zealand uh, till Australia, Mark Taylor's team conquered them in 1995 in the Caribbean. So I'm not too sure how many of the audiences remember two names. Gary Troop and Stefan Bock. Those were the number 10 and 11. Troop was a, a, a fast swing bowler, while Stefan Bock was a, a left arm spinner. They were the number 10 and 11, the last pair of the New Zealand batsmen who ran a pair of leg buys at Carisbrook in 1980 to win a test match. That was the last defeat for the Great West Indies side in 1979-80 before they were beaten uh, in, 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 in their home conditions in 1995. In between, as we talked about, Pakistan were the only side who kind of challenged them in those three great series in 1986, 88, as well as in 1990. We'll talk about it. So just to summarize, Sake, West Indies' legacy in team sport is almost unparalleled. I don't think even the All Blacks in rugby, they've dominated, but they haven't won because in rugby, you have to win World Cups and then you need to win in between. So even All Blacks never had the dominance. This sort of a dominance in a team sport, especially played by a disparate set of islands with different identities, different flags to come together. And also they changed the uh, I mean, playbook on its head because they had four fast bowlers. Some would argue that they killed spinners because they didn't believe in spinners, especially Clive Lord or even Vivian Richards, though he bowled a fair bit. They didn't have to win all the time, the toss and bat first. They won in all conditions. They were a bit intimidatory. Uh, they probably bent the rules a bit. So they played cricket in such a, an attractive, and they were a very popular team, and they were super dominant. We'll talk a little bit about you know, how they were dominant because people tend to think that they were a couple of islanders who came from uh, beaches and played cricket, but there was a lot of steel structure and everything behind it. 
So I think for an introduction, I'll take a pause. Uh, I think that's pretty much I would like to look at the Caribbean legacy sake. No, that's a that's a you know great overview. Uh, again, got more than I bargained for, and uh, I'll hold you accountable, you know, because we have to talk about these players uh, as the podcast progresses. So, Soheb, let me bring you in. This is your debut here, uh, and uh, you you've been working, you know, uh, as a broadcaster, and you've covered many a series. So, what is your context for this rivalry? I'm sure you've seen some of these matches from the stands, and was Pakistan always uh, ready for the West Indies Challenge because I'm also uh, my fandom goes back to 1984, and that time West Indies was a dominant team. And slowly, as an Indian fan, I saw Pakistan started competing even in ODIs with West Indies with the somewhat of an equality in Sharjah. So th- those are my recollections. And then, of course, the three series, uh, which are the showcase uh, of this conversation, we'll talk about that. But uh, provide some context from your vantage point, how you remember the series, and if there's more history to it between Pakistan and West Indies? Yeah, well, first of all, um, you know, I'd like to commend uh, Vijay for bringing to light the fact that, yes, West Indies were dominant even against England back in the 60s. I mean, even in 1973, Ron Kenai led them to a 2-0 defeat of the English team on their home grounds. Uh, you know, and can I got 157? I remember Sobers got 150. That was the last series that Sobers played. And they didn't have those fast ballers. They just had Keith Boyce and Van Bun Holder. So that's a very good point that Vijay has raised. That yes, perhaps we overplay uh, Clive Lloyd's contribution. Uh, but what uh, credit must go to Clive Lloyd for what Vijay also mentioned. That round about the late 70s, uh, the West Indies lacked a little bit of confidence after that 73 series. I mean, like uh, a season earlier, they had lost at home to Australia, the 1972-73 series. And uh, so, yeah, they were in a bit of transition in 1974-75 when they toured India. Uh, they won 3-2. They lost two test matches there. In Pakistan, they could only draw. They couldn't defeat Pakistan in the home series. And then in the worst thing that could happen to them was when they lost 5-1 to Australia uh, in that famous 1975-76 series after beating them in the World Cup final. So uh, Lloyd has said in his autobiography that once we were given that thrashing by pace by Lillian Thompson in the 1975-76 series and the way we were bombarded with bouncers and short balls uh, is what led me to believe that uh, fastballing is the future for me. I'm not, I mean, Lance Gibbs retired in 1975-76. At that time, the highest wicket taker in the world with 309 wickets. And after that, uh, Lloyd never turned to spinners again. Uh, I mean, there was the odd Carl Hooper in the 80s and then Roger Harper earlier than that in the early 80s and Ramadan uh, and then Imtiaz Ali and all that. They toured the 1976 uh, with the, uh, in England but never played so yeah I think that's a fair point and Lloyd actually took the advantage of the four fast ballers that he groomed and let loose on uh, the international batsmen remember for this generation you have to understand that in 1976 there were no helmets and uh, there was no bouncer rule when we come to the 1988 series, I'll talk about something that Ramesh told me that 
you know there was just about 20 odd to get for pakistan to win the first test and the first three overs uh, out of the first 18 balls 12 were bouncers aimed at uh, the batsman uh, so yeah coming back uh, i think what i remember from the west indies because i started watching them from 1970 uh four actually when they came to pakistan to play after before that i'd read about them uh so yeah lloyd had a great contribution in funneling the anger that uh the west indians had after that 75 76 defeat or rather thrashing at the hands of australia they took it out on the indians uh if you all remember uh, the 1975 76 series where bedi famously declared with five wickets down in the fourth innings he said i don't have any fit batsmen to go out and play three of them were in the hospital uh two he said at tail enders they're not going to change much uh michael holding was just you know bowling at the body and uh, then they went to england and then the famous gravel incident where tony greg said i'll make them gravel in an interview uh perhaps he didn't realize the significance of the word at that time uh, that gravel actually related to what the white would do to mike slave uh, to black slaves and make them gravel uh, in the coal mine and uh, well you know once they thrashed england 3-0 in that series and once they kept bouncing they tasted the smell of uh, anger i would say and after that they never looked back and even though the helmets came back in but by that time there was uh, you know even joel garner and colin croft had come in the 70s and uh, michael holding was already there andy roberts was downplayed but he was one of the fastest bowlers in fact a couple of batsmen have told me from pakistan that though they played holding they played garner croft but they said the one bowler that we feared was andy roberts because of the line and length of his uh, bouncers So yeah, I agree that uh, Frank Wall, uh, as Vijay mentioned, he he would actually have captained West Indies to Pakistan on the fifty-eight fifty-nine tour, but uh, I think he needed to complete his studies, so he didn't make that tour. So Alexander continued uh, on that tour, and then the first next opportunity that he got, Wall captained the West Indies on the sixty-sixty-one series that he mentioned each of those five tests. was a thriller and uh, coming back to the question you asked me about why it was so special when it came to pakistan actually it started with that very first meeting in 1957 58 west indies were very dominant in the 50s of the three w's there was best hall and then they had these fearsome pacers uh, gilchrist and griffith and all that they were emerging what happened was when hanif mohammed uh deficit of something like 405 in the first innings pakistan i think were bowled out for 106 i don't remember and they were made to follow on and west indies had earlier made something like 500 or something hanif mohammed batted 3 days 970 minutes for 337 i've spoken to a few cricketers who played their test match who are not alive anymore but i spoke to them in the 70s 80s they said that with the home umpires just ready to give an lbw imagine hanif mohammed batting for 3 days and not being given out lbw why because the ball hardly struck his pad so uh, hanif 
played that knock of 337 over 970 minutes he was vomiting on the ground from the heat from exhaustion and after that suddenly i think from that innings there was a huge respect for pakistan cricket by the west indian fans by the west indian media by the west indian cricketers and uh, although they won that series 3-1 but remember is that one that counts because pakistan won that test i think by in innings my apologies if my memory fails me so they could still i mean that was a series in which gary sobers a very young gary sobers hit 365 not out and uh, conrad hunt and all that they made double hundreds and yet pakistan won a uh, won that test match against them they saved that one test match uh, after batting for three and a half days and then they won that final test match so the ground was said that this is a country this is a team that can give west indies back and uh, when they came in 58 59 pakistan actually won two tests and west indies won one so that respect was continued uh, what i think also happened now this is a personal theory i read sociology and psychology when i was doing my mba uh and uh, i i rely on these a lot i think one of the things that factored in was that both the countries had a common cause and that was england i mean they they were both colonized they had born had faced very tough times as slaves as uh, as uh, as uh, as people who were not allowed into clubs where the english were and all that so that element was there that they had a common uh, rival you can say i won't use the word enemy because uh, you know they still had diplomatic relations and a lot of people traveled to england settled there from pakistan and west indies but as the saying goes the enemy of my enemy is my friend and based on that mutual respect because of hanif mohammad's innings and the fact they won beat west indies on their tour the very first tour and the fact that they had a common legacy now india also had a common legacy remember that india pakistan west indies they were the three cricket playing nations who had come out of uh, who gained independence from the british but the aggression that was there in pakistan is something that the west indians could relate to uh, india was compared to pakistan and west indies a much calmer nation uh, perhaps because of the influence that uh, they had in their culture and the religion which you know is is uh, something that a calming influence on them so indians relied mostly on spinners their batsmen did not have that flair that uh, intiaz ahmed would bring or uh, maksud ahmed would bring for pakistan in the 50s so what happened was that west indies could relate more to pakistan than they could to india and uh, and based on that series based on those even contests the respect for each other improved so by the time the 1980s came they had played enough series and they had seen the respect and uh, something used to come out of the pakistani cricketers i mean i have spoken to wasim raja the late uh, who passed away uh, but he had more than 1000 runs against west indies in about 11 test matches and that was phenomenal because he had an average of in the 20, late 20s or early 30s in his entire career but when it came to west indies it was something else why because he had flair 
he had glamour he had aggressive tech same with imran even majid khan there was this famous story uh, that majid told me himself in fact another journalist told me also that uh, in the third test of the 1976 77 series pakistan started their innings 255 four runs in deficit and uh, they said that majid khan was sitting in the dressing room waiting to open and he was furious and he was saying that we had enough of these west indians throwing bouncers at us uh, yes we folded very cheaply in the first inning west indies got a 254 lead when they batted in the first innings and now pakistan was facing an innings defeat and they said no way am are we going to go down with our heads bowed and you know what he struck 167 in that third innings and pakistan actually salvaged a draw so what happened is that every time west indies and pakistan met there was this level of aggression the level of self belief that level of fire that was there that was not there when it came to other countries even against india i mean 1978 and uh, 82 series yeah they were fantastic in india 1979 80 the indians were very aggressive that was there but when it came to west indies pakistan there was this uh, mutual respect that i am up there with the best and i am going to prove to this west indian team that i'm not going to take it lying down i mean pakistan teams would go to england in 70s until imran khan took them over 1980s and they would say let's play for a draw if we come out with a draw we won in the khabalam had that approach in 1974 oh wow we do the series you know uh, so uh, when it came to west indies it was absolutely different in fact i was looking at the record the only time that there was a nil nil draw in a west indies pakistan series they played about 18 20 of them was in 1974 75 when two draws were played uh, neither side won that was the only time i think in any series between pakistan and west indies where there hasn't been at least one result so pakistan actually has that respect for west indies west indies has a respect for pakistan also another element i think uh, before i pass it on back to you sakeb and vijay that the reason is both the countries just in the entire testing in the 70s played county cricket so uh, they faced each other in counties uh, this each of the west indian players from kenai to sobers to gibbs to derek murray andy roberts uh, and from pakistan asif iqbal mushtaq mohammad sadiq mohammad majid khan uh, you know asif iqbal they all played each other they all Uh, was successful in county cricket against the common enemy so as to say which were the british players and uh, that is why they became closer together also uh, and uh, you know they could go out for a cup of tea and talk something of mutual interest to them which was you know defeating england uh, so maybe that's why uh, the flair and aggression uh was there in both the teams and both teams since they appreciated those traits and yeah vijay 
Yeah, Soheb, uh, that's a very good summary and a good context from a Pakistani perspective in terms of how you perceive how the whole rivalry evolved, right? And I agree with you about how Pakistan, you know, even before that in 1954, the Oval Test, Fazal Mahmood, and how Pakistan famously won the Oval Test and how they competed well in the Caribbean in 58-59, including Hanif Mahmood, then Wazir scored that 100, Nazimul Ghani and others took wickets. They won that uh, famous Test match. But I have a slight... Uh, I mean, before I, you talk some right things about the 1970s county cricket and stuff, but I have slight two disagreements with you. When you said Pakistan and West Indies had this great thing in 58, 59, and after that, uh, you know, the whole rivalry evolved. But, uh, you know, because I remember my first time in Pakistan, West Indies came to Pakistan in 1986. The Sports Star had published the great rivalry and, you know, the records and stuff. I still remember... Um, Pakistan toured West Indies in 1958-59. After that, they had not toured for almost 20 years. 76-77. So they, they didn't tour throughout the 60s and 70s. And after 76-77, the next time Pakistan went to West Indies was 87-88, another 11 years. So I agree to some extent that yes, 57-58 was a good marker. But Pakistan was not invited for another 20 years, another 10 years. Similarly, if you look at the reverse... Uh, West Indies touring Pakistan, even that wasn't great. I mean, you know, they toured 58-59. Then, as you said, India, they played six test matches in 74-75. Then they played the two tests. After that, they toured 80-81, right? The reason, I mean, you brought the Indian example. To give a, a, a point on that, India, on the other hand, had toured West Indies in 52-53 for five tests, 61-62 again five tests, 70-71 for five tests, Gavaskar's debut. And again, they toured in 75-76. Um, I mean, there was a, then 83, right? So, it, it, yes, back then, West Indies probably didn't play home series every time. Uh, they were more interested in England and Australia because that's where the money was. So I have a slight disagreement. Yes, I agree to that from the 70s onwards or late 70s, 77 to 80s. That was a storied rivalry. But I wouldn't necessarily agree with an empirical evidence that 57-58 set up the whole thing in such a way that Pakistan and West Indies were, you know, so similar and they were looking forward to it because they haven't played enough, to be honest with you. 20 years not touring is a big gap. The other thing, what he talked about is a good conjecture because that's what Fire in the Babylon has talked about, right? It's very easy for us to come to a conjecture and say that, you know, colonialism, slavery, indentured labor. I think there's a fair bit of it is revisionist history because when players played, it's different. Of course, all of them have a little bit more to prove in a game of cricket when you play, you know, a black person plays a white person and so forth. It's, it's a bit complex, right? Uh, we could all get into the racial segregation, uh, apartheid, you know, we could all talk all about that. But again, right, uh, you, could, you could ask a Jason Holder to say that, you know, wear the maroon hat and, you know, prove that against uh, West Indies versus an Andy Roberts, unless you have the skills and talent all the talk about, you know, fighting colonialism, right? Uh, it sounds a bit hollow. Even Michael Holding has recently admitted to the fact that what they talked about in the fire in the Babylon about how the colonialism played a part in the West Indies wanting to giving back to England, especially racism and other things, it's more of an afterthought because when they played in the 60s and 70s, they wanted to play well. I mean, I think that's what I want to talk about, the cricketing angle, right? I think we need to really genuinely look at the cricketing angle because from a West Indies perspective, we'll come to Pakistan as well, right? It's very easy for a lot of people to talk about, oh, uh, West Indies was all about in the, on the beaches. People ran around and, you know, you go and clap and uh, fast bowlers came out and batsmen came and played aggressively. 
truth is not that straightforward because we need to go back to the Lancashire leagues. I think that's the, uh, that's literally the uh, incubator of the West Indian cricket success, because as I said, for a very long time, uh, only a white person could captain the uh, West Indian side. Uh, In 1928, if you look at it, 1920, I'm going all the way up to 1928, the Lancashire League had probably, what, uh, 14 teams with 10 amateurs and one professional. Until 28, only whites were allowed as professionals. But then Nelson, as a club, they took the Trinidadian Larry Constantine, the great West Indian all-rounder. Uh, and the, the, the legend has it, or not legend, the true uh, factual information, over 7,000 people watched them play. And they became very, very popular. And then Constantine lived in the town for 19 years and he became a barrister, a knight, Great Britain's first black peer in terms of Baron of Baron Constantine of Nelson. Then by the 1960s, you talk about 12 out of the 14 clubs in the Lancashire League had West Indian professional. You had Accrington with West Halls, uh, Burnley with Charlie Griffith. Some young fans would know that Jimmy Anderson is known as the uh, Lara of Burnley because uh, Jimmy Anderson comes from Burnley. That's where Charlie Griffith used to do the play. Uh, Vivian Richards later played for Riston. So Lancashire League has been such a, a competitive league where the West Indian cricketers, cricketers hone their skills. And of course, everyone knows about how they dominated the county cricket. You know, Lancashire, um, Clive Lloyd, and uh, we talk about Wayne Danny, Little Middlesex. Uh, we talk about Michael Holding at Derbyshire. And then we talk about uh, Vivian Richard at Somerset, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And again, as you rightly said, uh, to talk about Pakistan, even Abdul Kardar was there in Warwickshire in '48. Uh, Khan Mahmood played, uh, I think, a few games for Somerset in the 50s. Um, and then, you know, Majid at Glamorgan, Mushtaq Mohammed Northhands, uh, Asif Iqbal Kent, Intikab Alamsare, etc., etc. And a lot of Pakistanis have also talked about how county cricket uh, allowed them to look at the game in a different way, allowing leg spin to develop, captaincy style. I've always talked about the famous two chases Pakistan had against India in 1978, um, when India toured Pakistan, the two chases in Lahore and Karachi. They were so innovative, 20 overs, 160-odd runs, scoring that sort of a run rate was not possible in Test cricket. But having played in England in county cricket, um, multiple declarations, Sunday League, etc., etc., these Pakistani players were quite hardened up in terms of how to play cricket in a modern era. I think that was something that was pretty good. Uh, so, and also the other thing we can't forget is the World Series cricket, right? Because while all these talents were building up, uh, Kerry Packer uh, brought in all the, you know, physios, Dennis White, the AFL, a famous physio who brought in the extra bit of fitness to the West Indies cricket, uh, how the fast bowlers became uh, more uh, agile, nimble and modern training. Uh, so, and also some baseball trainers were there as well. So, I think if I look at the West Indian cricket, it's the Lancashire League, the county cricket, to the final finishing school of, um, you know, De- Kerry Packer and the modern training and food, nutrition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a bit like the Brazilian football, right? We talk about Brazilian football as samba football and so attractive. But even you go back to 1958 in Brazil, they had, uh, you know, nutritionists, they had, uh, you know, uh, coaches, they played four at the back. So even the glorified Brazilian team in 1982, why did they lose? They didn't have the structure of defense. So I, I don't want to go all over the place, but what I want to tell you is the West Indies cricket had a lot of structure. Yes, they were Calypso charmers in many ways, but it's a bit of a lazy assumption to say with the Calypso charmers or um, you know entertainers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Similarly, Pakistani cricket, it's very easy for people to say 
oh yeah, Pakistani cricket, Imran could pick someone off the street, Javed Mehendad saw someone at the nets. But let's not forget Pakistani under-19 teams in the late 70s and 80s used to travel to Australia, like Salim Malik, Amir Malik, Manzoor Ilak, and all those players had played test matches at the WACA ICG and all in the 80s. And then, you know, Australian under-19 team toured uh, Pakistan 82. So there was a fair amount of structure and, and uh, as you rightly said, the county cricket also helped. I think both Pakistan and West Indies, in my view, as they were developing into stronger forces in the 70s, 80s, they made use of county cricket, the World Series cricket, and the fact that they could share knowledge at that level, that helped. So I think it's a bit lazy for us to say they all had, you know, of course, there is an element of it in terms of colonialism, but I don't think that played a big role because you ask any of the current West Indies players or some of the poorer Pakistan players now to say that fight against the British using the colonialism, that's not going to wash. So as Nazar Hussain once rightly said, if you have a Shane Warne and a Glenn McGrath, you don't need to wear the baggy green to prove that you could beat England, right? You could, they could bowl with anything they'll get you out. So I think to me, the talent pool and the way they groomed in these English and Australian nurseries helped these two great nations to get to where they got to. I think that's, a, that's something I'd like to say, Soheb and Sakib. I think it's pretty clear you both are you know, really history buffs and you know your cricket. And I'll give uh, Soheb a minute to respond, but we have to take this podcast further because we already like, uh, you know, uh, into 30 minutes and a lot of good historical references being shared. Uh, but uh, just to be mindful, uh, you know, we want to discuss more uh, Richards and and Lloyd and, you know, and that kind of uh, the rivalry and, you know, with Imran and Miyadad. So, so if you want to just quickly respond to what uh, Vijay said, and then I have a lot of follow-up questions. No, I, I just like to say that when it comes to West Indies and Pakistan not playing for 14 years from 58, 59 to 74, that doesn't take away from the character uh, of the two sides and uh, why they played. That was primarily laziness from part of the cricket boards or whatever, lack of initiative from the Pakistan side, whatever. There could be hundreds of reasons. I'm not sure why there was this gap. I mean, uh, so... Uh, uh, I, I don't want to go into that aspect as use that as an empirical evidence. I was talking about the character uh, that developed uh, the, the causes of this rivalry between uh, Pakistan and West Indies, even though there was a gap of 14, 15 years uh, between them, whether it was financial reasons, whether because, uh, you know, at that time, teams paid for their own fare or whatever, maybe it was too far away to travel. Uh, I don't want to go into that, but uh, the character is what I was talking about. Secondly, uh, as I said, that's my personal theory. You may call it lazy thinking. You may call it uh, uh, whatever. But I think uh, from what I've understood, uh, talking to the cricketers, uh, they, they did have this uh, feeling that they respected each other tremendously for the way they fought whenever the two played, whether it was a gap of 15 years or 14 years. No, I think it's even in Kamran Abbasi's book, right, English Stan, when I spoke to him, he also speaks as a Pakistani living in, in, in England, that uh, it was not the rivalry with India that captured Pakistanis like him, their imagination. It was to beat the former masters, right? So uh, that part I've heard before from some Pakistanis, but uh, I, I don't think people living in Pakistan feel that. But I think people who moved to England, I think they probably resonated uh, with this feeling a little bit more because they were in England and 
you know, there was a new adopted motherland and they wanted to beat, you know, have their heroes come from Pakistan and beat England in cricket. But anyway, so there's a lot of good thought and I think we can go on and on about the historical, uh, you know, importance of this this rivalry. So let me bring Vijay in quickly here. You know, uh, let's talk about West Indies. And uh, uh, we, we were talking about, you know, the differences between Clive Lloyd and Vivian Richards as captains, right? We did a podcast, which was one of our first podcasts, I think, or second podcast about leadership and captaincy. So uh, Vijay, you're a student of the game. We all know you, you, you know your history, you read a lot. How do the two men measure up and as in terms of uh, uh, captains? And I have a context to this question from far. I think the bowling attack Lloyd had was at its peak and Richard inherited or took over that attack when I think... Uh, Andy Roberts was clearly past his prime, or maybe he was gone and Garner was about to leave. So compare uh, the captaincy style, but also the resources these two great captains had at the helm. So uh, how, do you, how do you measure these two captains? I would say, Saki, uh, Clive Lord had a bigger influence. And he, I know I'm a bit concerned about the jargon that's been thrown around these days as uh, psycho babble, right? Uh, on cricket Twitter, especially by some of the analysts. I'm a bit disappointed because... Uh, whether it's even Selah James, uh, who's a great Caribbean historian author, or we go back to some of the English um, you know, cricket historians. But we have to talk about it because, as Soheb talked about, there is a, a, an element of colonialism, racism, all those things matter. And again, as I said, it's not very easy to captain a West Indies side. And Clive Lord, having grown up in the Caribbean, there's a very famous story that he was 14 when his father passed away. And on a, on a stormy night, uh, uh, he had to bicycle all the way to the Georgetown suburbs to inform his extended family about his father's death. And history goes, or legend has it, that he became a leader of people then because at 14, when you do it, uh, when in a family uh, bereavement happens. So there is a lot of theory that Lloyd understood personnel very well, people very well. He knew the insecurities. Also, having grown up in the... having. Uh, grown up in a, a colonial Guyana, he understood the Indo-Caribbean contribution because in the 50s, I mean, there's a theory, right? 1952-53, when India toured West Indies, the Indo-Guyanese and Indo-Trinidadians would support India over West Indies. Can you believe it? That's how it was. So it's very easy for us to say all the West Indies people are behind them. No, a certain portion of uh, the West Indies people were supporting Subhash Gupte, the famous Indian leg spinner. They were supporting against their own team. I mean, you could call it the, the Tebit test of the 1950s before the Tebit test became popular uh, in, the, in England, uh, Norman Tebit, the, the conservative politician. So in a way, they were not united. So the, the role that was played by Clive Lloyd coming from Guyana, having seen the Indo-West uh, Indians and uh, you know, Afro-Caribbeans, I think he played a big role. And also he learned a lot of the things in Lancashire and also, by the time he became captain, he was a, he was the elder statesman, Sakib. So he was well-respected and people knew. Um, I mean, Rohan Kanai was there before him. Uh, so people kind of knew, um, you know, what sort of a personality he was. And he was respected. And everyone, uh, you know, I've read about and, you know, listened to. They all say, you know, the huge amount of respect he had was tremendous. And so he talked about 75, 76 in Australia. Uh, and then, you know, when India went there, uh, having won that series in the Trinidad test match, having chased 400, they unleashed uh, the bouncer barrage. It's bounced its beamers, I think. To, I mean, we need to definitely question some of the Lloyd's tactics. They were not uh, honest. It's one thing to bowl bouncers. They were bowling beamers, which is illegal, and the Jamaican crowds. And what Sunil Gavaskar has written about 
the Jamaican crowds and the behavior of the West Indies, you can't print it. They will not get printed in 2020. They're so racial uh, and so, uh, so abusive towards the Jamaicans and people. I mean, that's a different topic. So Clive Lloyd has a complex history as well. But to his credit, he molded the team. And after the, uh, uh, after the uh, reunion of the teams after the Packer in 1979-81 in Australia, that was the most significant win because the four fast bowlers they had, right? Roberts, Holding, Garner and Croft, four different fast bowlers, no spinners. So he used that template probably till 83, 84, 84, 85. By, by then, though they lost the 83 World Cup final to India, they were the most dominant test side, one-day side, the best fielding side, the best batting side, best bowling side. And also they had Alvin Kalicharan and uh, Larry Gomes as two of some of the good anchors. They could play uh, a, a good situation out, right? A difficult situation out. So the team had a bit of flexibility, though they didn't have spinners. I think Vivian Richards was a bit different because Vivian Richards, interestingly, if you look at the stats, he scored 24 test hundreds. He scored 18 of them before he became a captain. The peak of his powers like was from 76 till probably 82, 83, when he was the best batsman in the world, dominating all the attacks. And as Soheb talked about, he opened in a few innings in Australia in 75, 76, uh, when Roy Frederick scored that very famous 169, as well as the Wacker. Uh, but Richards, he wasn't the dominant test batsman he once was when he was a captain, but he still was leading from the front. And some of his great one-day innings came, including that uh, you know big uh, score against Sri Lanka in the 87 World Cup and so forth. But by the time Vivian Richards came, um, some of the uh, holding and Ghana were pretty much out, uh, close to retirement or uh, out. So the next set, Courtney Walsh was the workhorse. Patrick Patterson came in 86, he can be a bit inconsistent. We had, you know, the Benjamins, we had, and of course, Ambrose came coming along, and Marshall was still as the, the great bowler. Uh, but some of them, like Davis and others, weren't as accurate or as consistent. One thing we saw in the West, I mean, Richard's captaincy was the extras going up, this ill-discipline, um, getting the better of them, catches being dropped and stuff. And the one-day dominance started to definitely wane under Vivian Richards, especially when they went to Australia. Again, Pakistan was there in 86, 87 for the Ashes. There were three tournaments that were played. The Benson Ages World Series, there was Benson Ages uh, another cup, and the Perth Challenge. Perth Challenge, Pakistan and England competed in the final. West Indies didn't even qualify. And uh, then in the, um, and England again won the Benson Energy's World Series. West Indies again weren't in the final. 87 Reliance Cup, of course, Marshall and Greenwich were missing. West Indies didn't even get to the semi-final. So some of the aura surrounding West Indies started to diminish a bit under Richards. Um, there's another theory that Vivian Richards had the power of personality, but he was not the most popular person. Even Desmond Haynes, uh, who was eyeing the captaincy bit, wasn't very popular with, with Richards, but they were scared of him. I think Lloyd was more of the inclusive big tent captain who brought everyone in, while Viv Richards was a little bit of the powerful person. And there is a, there are rumors, hard to prove, that Vivian Richards probably didn't like the Guyanese Indians or the Trinidadian Indians. And he was more, I mean, his influence was more from the, uh, the African, uh, American, Afro-American musicians, uh, Afro-American artists and stuff. So he was a different personality. He grew up in a different era. Uh, so there are theories that uh, some of his uh, behavioral patterns didn't help uh, uh, didn't help the unity of the team, but he was still very, very successful uh, in leading from the front. So you ask me honestly, if you look at the stats, 
I think from a stats perspective, you could argue that Vivian Richards won 27 out of the 50 test matches. He was one captain who never lost a test series. So it's a great, great record, a 54% win. Well, Lord's percentage was only 49. But also, you could say that Vivian Richards benefited a little bit about both England and Australia having, I mean, both England and Australia having some problems, right? Because both of them had South African rebel tours. That means they lost quite a bit of players. And they only said that challenging was Pakistan. So Vivian Richards' biggest test was Pakistan, right? Those three series. So you could argue the only time Vivian Richards faced a strong side, he couldn't win. 1-1 in Pakistan in 86, 1-1 in the West Indies in 88. Uh, I mean, he was not the captain in 1990, but it was Desmond Haynes who captained against Imran. So you could say that Pakistan was the bugbear for Vivian Richards because Lloyd never played them except in 1980-81 in, in, in Pakistan, right? The peak of the West Indies didn't play in the 83-84 period to Pakistan. So Richards, I would say, great captain, um, probably not the most popular, but he couldn't get uh, the better of Pakistan. And that, that again, that's more a greatness of Pakistan than anything else. I would like to look at it. That okay, so a quick, quick follow up there. And uh, if you can just keep it, you know, quick here. Uh, so you say leading from the front, right? That's something, you know, that's very uh, much associated with Richards, his presence, his aura, you know, all these cliches, which we all grew up with, you know, he was the superstar along with Imran of that era. So do you think uh, uh, Richards, the, cap, the batsman, did he fare as much? Uh, as he was, because he was the prime batsman under Clive Lloyd. Some of his best years are in the late 70s. You think he was a fading force too? But, uh, you know, to tie into your uh, notion yeah. that he was leading from the front? Do, do, yeah, it's does a great tie point. In together? Yeah, it's a great point. As I said, he scored only six out of his 24 test hundreds as a captain. But he was still a great one-day player. I think uh, when he went to Pakistan in 1985, they, they went for a five-match one-day series. I think he scored a 39-ball 82. So he used to do those tremendous things, even when... Um, England toured uh, West Indies in 85, 86. He scored a 56 ball 100 at Antigua. So you could say, I think a, a bit like what we spoke about the such a Tendulkar podcast, right? Uh, not with you, sorry, with somebody else. I'm mixing it up. Uh, after first 10 years, Tendulkar still had those flashes of brilliance, but those were enough to, you know, keep the, the aura alive. In Richard's case, he still had those, you know, outrageous innings he scored, right? You know, which which was way beyond anyone's, way beyond that particular period of time. But if you look at statistically, he was definitely fading as a test batsman. And, uh, but he had some good resources in like Richie Richardson, Gus Logie was coming up, Carl Hooper was a young player who was coming up, and still Greenwich and Haynes was still there or there. I was in Dujon was a very useful player as well. So yes, you could argue that leading from the front is a bit cliched, might not be exactly empirically proven by his test numbers, uh, but I think his presence was more like the swagger. And I think great point you're raising because that also led to some bad behavior. Though Clive Lloyd was no saint, he used to argue with umpires and used to complain. Riches took it to the next level. Like when things didn't go well in India in 87, 88, he was constantly arguing with the umpires. Then same thing, right? Uh, uh, back in the Caribbean, uh, when Pakistan played, Salim Yusuf said something to him uh, when he was clearly aging and you know, Richards took very personally. So he was a little bit, I would say, a touchy person when it came to criticism. Even in the, the uh, then Rob Bailey incident when England toured in um, West Indies in 1990, he went and fought with the journalist and press box and stuff. So in a way, Vivian Richards was more more worried about his image as you know an image that has to be unsullied uh, and he wasn't very happy with some criticism maybe perhaps that has something to do with his waning prowess as a batting as well that's the conjecture i would like to say sakib that's a perfect segue for so hope to come in and i'm gonna throw 
uh, same question, but using two different names here, Javed and Imran, and image and aura and, you know, arrogance and personality are also traits that have been associated with, you know, Imran when he was at the top of things. And uh, it's very documented with, with Zahir Abbas, Imran's injury and Miyada, there was a musical chase of captaincy. And then later on with the mid 80s, especially after Zahir's retirement, Javed and Imran. So, so hey, uh, this is a question I've asked, you know, Ahmed Nakvi when he was on my podcast. How do you see the two gel together? They achieved a lot of great things, but uh, how? what is in the Pakistan circles? Did they actually get along or they were professional enough to just, you know, put their differences aside? Because there's so many, you know, angles to this. I would like to hear yours uh, because they did accomplish a lot together. So your take on the relationship and uh, did it matter who was captain? Well, uh, there was a television series in the 70s, The Persuaders. I don't know whether any of you are aware of that. There was Roger Moore and Tony Curtis who played. One was a British lord and the other was somebody who had made, uh, risen up and made his millions on Wall Street. And I've always, always compared Imran Khan and Javed Miala's relationship with uh, that TV series that uh, Roger Moore and Tony Curtis had. One, a British lord, uh, a privileged upbringing, and the other, someone who fought his way to the top. Uh, that was what Imran Khan and Javed Miyadad were. Look, on the field, they backed each other up like anything. But off the field, they had completely different personalities. Like, uh, they probably wouldn't want to go out and have dinner together, just the two of them. You know, that's it. So, uh, they were very different. But the common the common thread between uh, among uh, in between the two was Pakistan and the love for Pakistan, their patriotism for Pakistan, their desire to win at any cost. Uh, and uh, uh, that is what brought them together. They were very different personalities uh, as uh, uh, Lloyd and Richards were. Uh, Lloyd, uh, slightly the calmer one, the more of a father figure. The Richards uh, was more um, uh, emotional and uh, more, uh, you know, uh, sensitive uh, to what was going on around him and uh, that Lloyd's desire was uh, to bring the team together, to unleash the team at the opposition. Richard's charged from the front. Uh, when it came to Imran and Miyadad, uh, as I said, Imran was from HSN College, a privileged background, uh, went to Oxford and you know had all the uh, trappings of, uh, of a British lord. Javed Miyadad was from a middle-class background, uh, but uh, he started playing cricket at the age of 11, and he had this desire, ambition. He worked on his cricket. He, he played in the heat and the dust of Karachi and whatever. Uh, Imran played in Etchison, and at the age of 19, he was in playing all his cricket in England. At the age of 18, in fact, when he went on the 1971 tour of Pakistan, and it was such a privileged selection uh, primarily because of Majid Khan, his elder cousin, and Javed Balti, that he didn't even have a bowling run-up. Uh, and Majid Khan asked him, what are you doing in the nets? Uh, you're bowling different. Uh, every ball is with a different action. He said, well, I don't have a run-up. I don't have a bowling action. And uh, then Majid and a couple of other cricketers coached him into it. And uh, Imran writes in his autobiography uh, that, uh, you know, the first ball I bowled in the nets, I got a mouthful from Aftab Gul, who was the Pakistani opener at the time and uh, very vocal. And the reason was that I almost hit him on the head. 
the only problem was he was batting in the adjoining net. And that's how wild Imran was. So he himself writes in his book that his introduction into Pakistan cricket was because of the privileged background and the family background that he had. So Javed Miyadat fought his way through. So that formed their cricketing personalities as well. Imran had nothing to fear. Imran always took uh, the status of being selected for Pakistan as granted because of his background. Uh, he felt he should be captain in 1979 when Javed Miraj was made captain. Why? Because uh, Imran had played in 1971 for Pakistan. He had played in 1974 for Pakistan, both in the English tours. Whereas Javed Miraj had made his test debut in 1976 in New Zealand, in the first test when Imran had already played three test matches and had played for the World Cup and all that. So there was this rivalry between the two as well. Uh, that uh, for the captaincy, for the leadership. Uh, between the two, Imran was more of an inspiring captain. Uh, he would uh, lead from the front, as would Javed Miyadar. But Imran had this uh, uh, aura, this charisma around him that everyone, you know, respected him. And because he was quite aloof as well. He was, uh, I wouldn't call him an introvert, but he had his own lifestyle. Like the uh, some, sometimes on tours, the team would travel in a bus and he would get dropped to the ground by a friend in his car who would pick him from the airport, uh, from the hotel. Uh, so uh, that was the difference between Imran and Miyadad. Miyadad was a tactician. He was shrewd. He could read out a batsman's psyche. He could annoy the batsman into getting dismissed like he did uh, Hogg uh, in Australia. On the 78-79 tour, he was standing at City Point and Hogg would just, you know, uh, keep prodding forward. And he just said, you know, there's some pebbles out on the trees. You should clean them up. Otherwise, the ball might fall on them. Next time he prodded forward, he went forward and cleaned the pebble. Mirat picked up the ball and ran, ran him out. And uh, Hogg just threw his bat in disgust because that's the way Mirat thought. I mean, he would make he, you know, he was street smart. He would come up with out-of-the-box thinking to get players dismissed. Imran would leave it to his bowlers. He would see the bigger picture. Miyadad would see the micro-picture. I mean, if I was the CEO, if Imran was the CEO, he would not micromanage. Javed Miyadad would micromanage even the lower uh, middle management. So, both were passionate. Both loved Pakistan. Both fought for Pakistan. And both uh, led by example, I would say. Because uh, even in the 1988 series, I mean, Miyadad was not the captain. But he got those two hundreds. And Imran took those 11 wickets. And that's how Pakistan won the first test of that 87-88 tour. Uh, the difference was that when Miyadad was captain, Imran was hardly available. After 1980-81, after he became the captain in 1982, Imran would not play under Miyadad. If he was not available, Miyadad would become captain. That's how it was. So Miyadad uh, sort of didn't really like that. But you know what? Read the two autobiographies. Miyadad in his book, Cutting Edge, has devoted an entire chapter to Imran Khan and called him one of the greatest cricket cricketers. Even today he talks about it. Whereas Imran always said that, well, you know, Vasim Akram should be captain, not Miyadad, or you know, he was a, he he didn't go out of his way to praise Miyadad. 
But when whenever you asked Imran, he had huge respect for Miyadal for his batting. Um, leadership, as I said, Imran would pick his team and then tell them to go out and play. He would not micromanage. Miyadal would send signals from the dressing room to even the batsmen. This is the way you should play. This is the what the baller might do to you. And uh, in, in the field, he would be constantly engaging with his ballers. Imran wouldn't. Imran, you know, would give the ball to Abdul Qadir and then stand up mid-off and not say anything for six balls. Whereas Miyadad would be chirping away from City Point after every delivery. So, those are the two things. Those were both geniuses in, uh, in, uh, in their respective departments. In fact, Imran improved his batting so much that uh, in the last 10 years uh, of his test career, I think he had an average of 52. Uh, as a batsman uh, in test cricket. So, yeah, uh, again, I would go back to persuaders, have a look at that program sometimes and you will understand the relationship that Imran had with Miyadad and Miyadad had with Imran. Both had tremendous respect for each other's cricket, uh, but Imran uh, took it for granted and Miyadad worked for it. Yeah, I think even in the 87 famous, uh, the Bangalore test against India, I think Imran wanted to play Kadir and Miyadad I think it convinced him to play Iqbal Qasim and the rest is, a le- you know, stuff of legend. Qasim, you know, uh, won Pakistan that match. So Vijay, uh, I'll, I'll bring you quickly here about Miyadad uh, because this is like, a, we, we don't have to stick to, you know, you talking about West Indies and Swahib, vice versa, only Pakistan. So in the Azhar podcast, you did mention uh, that Dilip Vengsarkar during the late 80s was enjoying a healthy rivalry with Javed Miyadad as the best batsman of the world. So talk about what you remember of Miyada taking on the West Indies pace attack. Uh, because my hazy memory is uh, he was, you know, a street smart cricketer. You know, we used all that, even his batting, he was pace, his innings and chases. And West Indies were the standard. Like in ODI, I think West Indies still got the better of Pakistan in the mid-80s, except the Alliance Cup matches. I think they were winning most of those matches. But he was scoring a lot of runs, what I remember, in Sharjah and wherever. So what do you remember of his approach against the West Indies quicks? So, Sakib, I think uh, Sohei brought out a very important point. Let me start with Miyandad, but let me talk a little bit about his captaincy because Sohei made some very good comparison between who Imran was and who Javed Miyandad was and how there was almost uh, the rebellion that took place. So there was an actual rebellion, right? Um, In 81-82, when Pakistan went to Australia, Javed Miyandad was the captain, but somehow... There was a feeling that uh, he had a little bit of, uh, you know, alleged arrogance and attitude problems. So when when Sri Lanka toured Pakistan in 1982, seven or eight of their players, Majid, Imran, Zahir, Moshin Khan, Wasim Raja, I think even Wasim Bari, they all, or even Sarfras, they said we wouldn't play under uh, Meandad. So I think Noor Khan, who was the, the Air Vice Marshal, um, if I'm right, uh, uh, Soheb, correct me if I'm wrong, he was the one who appointed, uh, you know, he he over uh, he oversaw that, but he still appointed Miandad and stood his ground. I think that led to the debut of, say, Salim Malik, Salim Yusuf, uh, Tahir Nakash, and maybe Rashid Khan. Rashid Khan, four of them, I guess, right? So, so but then some of the rebels like Iqbal Qasim and Wazim Raja came, um, uh, you know, came back uh, after the negotiation. So kind of tell, tells you that Pakistani cricket had, had a fair bit of soap opera when it comes to the captain's the uh, merry-go-round between Zahir Abbas, Imran, and uh, Javed Miyandad. And I think Soheb is right that Miyandad's 
only uh, point of contention is uh, how uh, how he had to he had to uh, put up with these rebellions which wasn't the case uh, for imran um, so coming back to your question about who did better in terms of javed mehandad and his approach i would say javed mehandad was more around he was a great batsman his technique was as as sohib rightly pointed out it's all street smart cricket uh, he comes from the karachi um, and it's all about how he played his cricket he drew an imaginary line outside the fourth stump he knew when the ball would swing so he wasn't a copybook like gavaskar but he had his own technique to how to play and as you rightly said he was a super smart one day cricketer uh, who knew how to accelerate how to pinch those singles how to attack the spinners better etc but there was one glaring uh, gap on his cv in terms of test cricket was he had not scored a test 100 against the west indies because it's one thing to have this dominant record against england new zealand or even australia a, a strong record against india at home but when it came to west indies he had never scored a, a test 100 at home or away but again as i said there was a bit of a problem because there was no test cricket between pakistan and west indies between 1980 and 86 six years uh, of prime of mehandad's career they never played a test match so if you don't play how do you get a 100 right so they played the series uh, in pakistan in 86 um, and then when they went to the caribbean in 88 javed mehandad you know there's a bit of history right imran khan first of all he had retired and uh, the pakistani then general ziaul haq had to call up and uh, request imran to come out of retirement so imran had to work extra hard to play in this series but he literally started to coax mehandad saying look your legacy will not be complete unless you score a test hundred against west indies it's your opportunity it's your moment you have to do it so imran had this you know personality management skills where he was able to bring the best out of mehandad and guess what mehandad did the brilliant thing and talk about it that was kurtley ambrose's debut right um, though he played in that uh, one day series prior to that they won 5-0 the west indies so that was the um, uh, border test at the georgetown Uh, cricket ground um so jo in georgetown in guyana so ambrose bowls him meander hits him for a he plays a hook shot and then he kind of gesticulates to ambrose and tells him to move bo- bo- bouncer so in a way meander was able to impose his will on a young debutant i mean kurtley ambrose became one of the greatest fast bowlers of all time but meander had the cheek and the and the and the daredevil to take on a young fast bowler of course he was caught of uh, uh third man of a no ball again that that was a test match in which the west indies had quite a bit of uh, uh disciplinary issues with the no balls and stuff but again that 100 was a, such an important 100 i think got put 114 then the second 100 was even better in trinidad because they were chasing 371 for an improbable win and he scored another brilliant 100 when even malcolm marshall was back so uh, i think jackie richards the the west indies coach then he said the right thing after the defeat uh, in the first test he said Pakistan not have the West Indies not having Vivian Richards and um Patrick sorry uh, Malcolm Marshall was a bit like Pakistan had having Imran and Javed Mehandad the two super strong architects so they contributed a lot to come back to that Mehandad's one day record was really really good he had scored some really good big hundreds he had hit some big fast bowlers in places like Sharjah for sixes even as late as uh, 1993 when he went to uh, South Africa he hit 
the daylights out of Alan Donnell in a brilliant one-day innings. What was must have been at in East London. So Meander's pedigree against great fast bowling was always there. There's one gap about his test standards, not having test standards against West Indies, which he brilliantly answered with those two brilliant hundreds in in in, in the Caribbean in the 88 uh, circuit. Uh, yeah, that's uh, you know really good stuff again, Vijay. And uh, you know I have a follow-up question, but I'll save it for later on Imran. But let me bring Suheb in here. So Suheb, if we try to talk about these three series, 88 to a lot of people is a showpiece. Like Vijay said, Imran retiring unceremoniously with the Reliance Cup semi-final loss and General Zia had to convince him. In the meantime, I think uh, Javed captains again and then he comes back for the series, you know, gets his fitness back. So is that 88 series also the showpiece for you? Uh, if you look at 86, 88 and 1991, is that the series? Because a lot of people talk about it as one of the greatest series of uh, the late 80s, but there is not much footage of that. It, I don't think it was shown live in many places. Definitely not in India. We didn't get that, but did, did you get did you get it live in Pakistan as well? Oh, it was definitely one of the greatest series played of all time. I mean, I followed that. I wrote on it, uh, but from Pakistan, I wasn't traveling because I was basically a corporate person at a job. Uh, we listened to the radio commentary that went off till three o'clock in the morning. Uh, it was the greatest series. And I read somewhere that when test rankings were introduced and they calculated all the way back to the 70s and 80s, that 1988 was the year in which Pakistan was the number one test team in many ways. And that was probably because uh, they had defeated England in England in 1987. Before that, they had defeated India in India in 1986-87 series. Uh, just uh, two uh, uh, points. Uh, yes, Imran actually had said that he would retire after the 1987 World Cup. He said that after the Tour of England in 1987. Uh, what happened was that when Pakistan lost in the semi-final against Australia, Imran was extremely devastated. And he went away for into oblivion for about four weeks. And he just kept saying that, well, I had announced my retirement and so I am. Uh, but he was only what about 37, 30, uh, in fact, less than that. I think he was 35, 36 years old. And uh, what happened was that when Pakistan was going to West Indies, someone actually mentioned to him that, look, this is your greatest chance uh, for glory after that loss of the 1987 uh, semi final. Because if you can beat West Indies and West Indies, uh, I think that loss against Australia will. Uh, you know, not linger on as much as it would otherwise that uh, Imran Khan, you retired by losing the semi-final of the Cricket World Cup and that sort of perked him up and Imran sort of started realizing that yes, uh, West Indies is the final frontier for me because he had been there in 1976-77. He had taken something like 6 for 18 Jamaica or one of those uh, wickets and he knew that uh, Imran always set big targets for himself. He, uh, for example, he would skip series just because he was bored. I mean, the 1990-91 series where uh, he played against uh, West Indies, uh, there was a series against New Zealand before that and he skipped it. He's saying that, you know, four of the top players have not come in. They're not good enough competition for me to play the series. So he always aimed big. If it was uh, something that challenged him, he would pick that. So yes, uh, he was brought back and I think uh, he himself wanted to come back for the series, but he 
wanted to be invited in so i think it was arranged that zia ullah would invite him and he would say yes and which he did uh, so uh, yeah i think 1988 series was just about uh, the epitome uh, we didn't see it live which was very strange because in 1976 77 series when pakistan was on the cusp of winning the fourth test the last half hour uh, or rather the uh, final hour of the fourth day or fifth day whichever it was in pakistan needed just three wickets for an innings win that match was telecast live so the facilities were there for the match to be telecast live uh, back in 1976 and yet the 1988 series uh, you know we didn't even get the highlights if i recall correctly uh, the reason was that the west indian broadcaster at the time Uh, would not even I think telecast it live within the West Indies. They were just highlights broadcast in the West Indies, and those tapes are lost. As far as I know, in fact, what I've seen, only six minutes of the final day or the final session of the final test is available, wherein uh, West Indies win the third test by two wickets to draw the series at home, and uh, there is this contention. That uh, uh, Dujon was out, caught in bowl. Uh, sorry, caught a short leg of bat and pad, and Benjamin Winston Benjamin was LBW. And you can see from the replays uh, from those highlights that someone has copied from a TV screen that in fact yes, that was right. So coming to your question and sticking to your question, I think it was the greatest Test series played at least in the 80s, if not in the last 30 years. uh both teams had a point to prove uh because west indies as uh, mentioned earlier had come in 1986 87 and uh, they had drawn the series riches wanted to win a series against pakistan imran wanted to win a series against west indies that was the main uh, thing and the fact is that uh, again i come back to the fact of why is it that west indies hold pakistan in high respect ever since the 1957 58 series I mean, look at the figures that I read. That between June 1976 to March 30, 1995, West Indies are said to have played 142 tests and lost only 19. And then of those 19, four were to Pakistan. And every time, I think Pakistan won the first test in 86-87. They won the first test. Uh, in uh, 1987-88, they won the first test. In 1991, 1991, they won the first test. So Pakistan always tasted first blood. It was only, I think, in 1976-77 that they won the fourth test. But when they won the fourth test, it was one all. So Pakistan was always in with a chance of winning the series. West Indies in 87-88 uh, only could only draw the series uh, when the third test started. so pakistan were at an advantage and i mean we can talk later about the details of the 8788 series but honestly it was it was amazing the way pakistan played yes richards and marshall were not there but when richards and marshall returned for the second test pakistan almost chased down 372 in the in the fourth innings to win the match they finished on 341 for 9 uh, and in the third test with again marshall and richards available Uh, I think Pakistan, for all practical purposes, won that third test. Had the decisions not gone against them. 
So let me quickly bring Vijay in. So, Sakib, uh, Sakib, no, I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to say something on this because it's a video, right? Um, I don't want, I wouldn't like to trumpet my own fame, but I would like to hear because for me, this 1988 Pakistan tour of West Indies, I had closely followed it though, as Soheb rightly pointed out, or as you rightly pointed out, there was not even any news reels or highlights coming out of the Caribbean. But we used to get proper reports uh, from the Hindu. Kamar Ahmed used to send those reports um, every day from there. Interestingly, for me, this series, uh, we had good previews. Uh, we used to get the reports every day, but for some reason, never saw, saw a ball of it. Uh, so I knew, right, you know, Shahid Mohammed, who had, who, whom we had seen in India in 87, the year before, Ijaz Fakir, you know, some of these younger players, right, along with the, the genuine greats. Very interestingly, I've always been chasing, I mean, I've been online for the last 15, 16 years, I've spoken to a lot of Pakistanis and stuff. I've always asked a lot of people, including Rob Moody, who's known as Robalinda, uh, some seven, eight years ago, hey, is there any way you could reach out and get this series? But everyone said nothing is available. But I somehow used to search on YouTube and stuff. One fine day, 2019, November, I was just searching internet or YouTube. And the six-minute video Soheb talked about was there. Two videos. One was the uh, four-and-a-half, five-minute video of the game. And the one was the match presentation with Intika Balam speaking when Imran receiving the Man of the Series and stuff. Two videos out of nowhere were just lying around a week before they were published. And I was the one who published it on Twitter. Uh, and I put it out. Um, and a lot of people thanked me and stuff. Osman Samyuddin. Who's uh, who used to be a Pakistani correspondent for Cricket Four? Now he lives in London. I think he's more of a deputy editor or whatever. He quote tweeted it and he wrote a piece on Cricket Four about how it was. And he made a factual error. Interestingly, he made a factual error by saying that till England went to Pakistan, uh, sorry, till England went to West Indies in 1990, the Sky tele televised thing ball by ball. There was not a single series from the Caribbean that was properly televised because different islands, different TVs, etc. But interestingly, I kind of, kind of corrected him by saying that when India went the next year in 1989, uh, TWI was televising it. We got daily highlights with Tony Lewis, Gary Sobers, Jimmy Amarnath, etc. So we got daily highlights when India went in 89. But unfortunately, when Pakistan went the year before, we didn't get anything. So I got a bit of a fame from my perspective because I was the one who brought it out on Twitter. And Osman Samidin wrote the piece. And he, he, he when I wrote that uh, in a small little, if I could use the word nitpicking, he, he acknowledged the error. And I met a few of my Twitter friends through that. Interestingly, 77 that Soheb talked about, which, I mean, I've read uh, from the Pakistanis that was televised when they were about to win the test match. The Sabina Park test match, we got a 43-minute video. Again, I was the one who just stumbled upon it. The, the guy called Shabir, who used to live in Lahore, now I'm told that he's moved overseas to Canada somewhere. He was on some TV shows in Pakistan and all. He used to run a big VCD shop, I'm told. He had published a 43-minute video of that uh, test match with Harun Rashid and Ashwik Ball scoring a brilliant innings, Gary Sobers being in commentary. Again, I was the one who published on Twitter and a lot of people asked questions. In fact, uh, there was one sixer boundary that was incorrectly attributed. And Joel Garner was bowling a slow ball in 1977 of all places. So, look, my fascination with this great rivalry between West Indies and Pakistan uh, has always been there. And I played my tiny little bit in bringing a couple of those obscure videos to the Twitter friends. I'd like to get some credit for it, Sakib. No, no, you are a legit bona fide superstar, and your 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 knowledge is uh, is right up there. So definitely, you know, you should share this on a medium like this. But uh, my follow up yeah. with can you I, can is, I come in? no, let can me just I come fin in finish. And... Just a second, yeah, I have to. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so 
you know, using 86-87 series where Imran was a big advocate of neutral umpires and then Pakistan drew the series which they, Pakistani fans and Pakistani players thought they should have won. So Vijay, just a question to you and then Swayab can also weigh on this. So Richard's bowling, the last over to Abdul Qadir, was that bizarre uh, or was that because they, you know, he didn't calculate his overs, but this is a test match. Why was he bowling that last over? The team that is known for his fast bowling and Abdul Qadir, the number 11, survived the last over. Uh, on the second test, which could have been a West Indies win. In Pakistan, you know, uh, due to some empire decision, probably fancied it could have gone their way earlier. Yeah, so to answer your question, first umpiring, the fa- I think the three series, 86, 87, 86 in Pakistan, as I said, where I lived in South Tamil Nadu, we used to get PTV. So uh, the day, I mean, on, on odd day. So I watched that, what, they were 48 for nine the day before in Faisalabad. The next day they got out for 53 all out. Um, I think that test match was by the Pakistani umpires. The two Indian umpires, the first ever neutral umpires, came uh, to Pakistan for the next test match in Lahore, uh, uh, Ramaswamy and the Pillu reporter. Imran was an advocate for that. Uh, but I think the main thing, the reason why Imran wanted these umpires, you need to go back to the genesis. Imran was quite unhappy in England in 1982, uh, the constant incident in the, at the Headingley where Pakistan felt they, they deserved to win the series and few things didn't go their way. And there's a lot of bad blood between Pakistan and England in terms of umpiring. Uh, though there was a lot happening on the Pakistan side, for once England had some faults on their side as well. I think Imran had that and then Imran knew that we had won a lot at home, but people always blame our umpires for it. Uh, I, I, he wanted to fix that. And that's one of the reasons he brought in the two umpires. And the West Indies won that Lahore test and Pakistan happened to save the Karachi test with Imran showing with his bat how he could save a test match. Now, coming back to your question in 88 in, Pak, in the Caribbean, I think all neutral observers would agree that if neutral umpires were there or DRS was there, Pakistan would have won the series deservedly because they had the moments, they controlled... And, uh, you know, the reverse swing, the leg spin of Abdul Qadir, both over and around the wicket, and some gritty batsmanship. Salim Yusuf, um, even Shoaib Mohammed had some good play, some some very innovative captains, Abodijas, Fakih, and uh, even Shoaib Mohammed taking wickets. The great question about why Richards bowled the last over. I think my, I mean, I, as I said, we don't have ball by ball records. Uh, we had Marshall back, we had their four quakes. And Richards bowled in the last over and Kadir defended the five balls. I, To be perfectly honest with you, I don't know. Because a couple of years later in the Nehru Cup final, when Pakistan and West Indies played, Vivian Richards made a, a big miscalculation. And then he bowled the last over and Wazim Akram hit the six at the Eden Gardens to win the test one-day game final, right? So I don't know if Soheb has an answer why he bowled the last over. Or it could be a case that, you know, those days, the mandatory overs after the last hour began, right? Uh, was set off for a time and Richards tried to squeeze in an extra. I think my plausible explanation is probably Richards thought with one wicket uh, remaining, if a fast bowler had bowled, it would have taken X number of minutes. Maybe by bowling him an over, he could have squeezed in an extra over or a long day with the quicks being tired. That's the plausible explanation, Sakib, I have for that. So if you can come in and I apologize, I, I cut you off there, but yeah, you can speak what no, you actually- would respond. No, no, no. Actually, I wanted to uh, say that I had no idea, Vijay, that you were the one who located that YouTube video. Otherwise, I would have mentioned you at all because uh, I just, uh, uh, someone sent me a link on that and I had a look and I, I just had no idea. So, you know, hats off to you for getting that video out because at least we got to see something. Uh, regarding that uh, 
asked over, look, uh, do you remember uh, uh, the Ashes series about a year back when uh, Anderson and Broad were batting to save that test, uh, nine wickets down, and eventually Smith came on to bowl because it was out of desperation and they said, let's try something else. I just have a feeling, look, there were mandatory overs, right? So the fact is that 20th over had to be bowled even if it took 10 minutes first. So there can be two reasons why Richards bowled that over. First was to relax the batsman. And if you note, Salim Yusuf was out on the first ball of that last over, LBW, because Salim Yusuf had batted and uh, he had, you know, gone through the best that West Indies had to offer. So what happens is that psychologically, a batsman relaxes and says, wow, it's all over. We've saved the match. And suddenly his concentration lapses. So maybe Richards was playing on that psychology and it worked in the first uh, instant because he got a ball with the first wicket. Second uh, could be, which I find uh, may not be the reason because they were home umpires, was light. So sometimes what happens is that uh, umpire could have told Richards that, look, if a fast bowler bowls, we're taking the players off because it's bad light. So even if it's mandatory overs. So maybe that was could have been the reason that Richards came on to bowl. So it has to be one of those two reasons. So, Sakib, just to add to Sakib, Sakib, I didn't publish the video. I'm just saying it was published by somebody in the Caribbean. I brought it out to Twitter and, uh, I mean, Osman Samuidin took note and he wrote the piece. Just letting you know, I don't, I shouldn't take credit for the video. I should get credit for getting the video out on Twitter to a wider audience when it was lying there on YouTube. So, I just want to take enough credit, not the full credit. <laughs> well, well said, well said. But you deserve the credit for bringing it to limelight. And, and while you guys were exchanging your, your notes on this, I opened the scorecard on ESPN Trick Info. So, Richards had bowled four overs in the last innings and had taken two wickets. So, maybe he was also in the mix. He had gotten Ijaz Ahmed out and then he got the ninth wicket, Salim Yusuf, which probably could have been the last over, I think. So, yeah. did it. so it could so have been bowling so in, in tandem. Sakib, don't forget, it was a, I remember the reading a lot about the game and I read reports as well, right? It was a Trinidad. I mean, Trinidad is usually a, a turning wicket on days four and five. But it was started off as a, a grassed-up wicket. So both sides had a bit of a first inning shootout with 194 and 197, 194, 174, 20-run lead. And then uh, Viv Richard scored that brilliant 100 um, and took the score to 370-odd. And that's where Pakistan, 390-odd. Uh, that's where Pakistan had to chase 370-odd. Now, I think I still remember uh, there was a rest day and the wicket was getting flatter. So, wicket was getting flatter. And Trinidad doesn't have the bounce like that uh, Sabina Park in Jamaica has or Kensington Old Invest in, in Barbados. So, being a lower and slow wicket, a spinner on day five, I mean, last innings, you would expect them to play. It's just that the the the, the aura that's been created by the, the four quicks and they don't need spinners. And as I said earlier, that was that was at the peak of his powers during the Clive Lord um, era. By the time West India, Vivian Richards was captaining, he had to use Clyde Butts uh, a little bit of Raja, Roger Harper, himself, Viv Richards. And these bowlers had to come and bowl a few overs um, because, and quicks, four quicks get tired as well. And it still is a young attack. It was not like, you know, Ambrose was playing was second test match and uh, Benjamin was there and Marshall uh, was coming off injury. So there could be a bit of niggle, tiredness. And as Soheb rightly said, sometimes we need a different change of pace and he had dismissed uh, Salim Yusuf in that over as well. So it could be a combination of all of that, uh, Sakib. 
Sure. So it's a slight deviation, digression, which I do in most podcasts, but I think it's related because we, we'll be talking more about Imran as the podcast you know, comes to a conclusion. So this is a question for uh, Soheb and Vijay, you can come into It's a common question. Uh, right after the Lions Cup, I think England played Pakistan and when Imran was in retirement, right? So the Shakur Rana Mike Gatting incident happened. So I was reading the Imran autobiography biography by Christopher Sanford and he said, had Imran been there, uh, you know, the situation wouldn't have escalated, uh, you know, not exactly what he said. Miyadad just didn't handle the Shakur Rana Gatting episode that well. So, so hey, what, what do you recall of that? And is it fair to say if Imran was there, he would have handled uh, this incident better? Because the shadow of Imran is so huge, just like Michael jo- Jordan's shadow. Like this is a shadow that keeps getting bigger and no comparison, I think, is good enough. So I think that's where I'm going for the next topic of this podcast. But uh, what do you re- remember of the Shakur Rana incident and do you think Sanford is accurate if Imran was there things would have been different well uh, the thing is the issue was between Shakurana and Mike Gatting the Pakistanis had nothing to do with it the fact is that uh, Shakurana told Mike Gatting that you moved a fielder after the baller had started his run up because Mike Gatting was standing at short leg and he turned with his left hand and he pointed to square leg to come squarer while the batsman had taken guard, right? So technically, uh, you can't change the rule once the baller starts his run-up or something like that. And Mike Gatting just blew his fuse. Uh, Shakurana gave a, either a no-ball or he stopped the match. I don't remember what exactly what happened. And Shakurana went and then there was finger-waving between the two. And the fact is that Shakurana asked for an apology as an umpire. Imagine this happening in England. Do you think any English umpire would have come onto the ground the next day if a Pakistani player had acted like that in front of him? Would the media have forgiven? No. So the fact is Shakur, Mike Getting refused to apologize. And the match was stopped for a day because Shakurana refused to come out to officiate the match. The Pakistan cricket board told the English cricket board, look, this is not on. Whatever the thing you cannot shout at an umpire on live TV during a test match. Now, the English cricket board told Shakurana to apologize. And Shakurana, uh, sorry, told Mike Ketting to apologize. And Mike Ketting refused. So it was between Shakurana and Mike Ketting and the English cricket board that the altercation took place and the whole, the whole day's play was lost. And England actually lost the initiative because they were in a better position to win the test match. So I'm not sure whether Imran would have said anything, uh, done anything different because the Pakistanis were not involved in uh, what was going on anyway. Vijay, what's your recall of this event? I think uh, Soheb is right on. Uh, I was surprised when Sanford put in the book that had Imran been there, this situation, you know, they would have intervened or at least they, they would have found a solution. Uh, what do you recall of re- reading about that? So it's a bit hard because we got even TV clips and stuff um, in India. But I think uh, uh, the Pakistani, the British ambassador in Islamabad, uh, I forgot his name, uh, not Barry, I think it's Barrington. I, I had to really dig deep. Not Ken Barrington, some, some Barrington, if I'm right. He had made a statement later. I think they revealed uh, some of the classified information a little later, uh, I think in the early 2000s. I think he had mentioned that Pakistani said more than a um, grain of truth when they said that uh, England uh, England behaved in a in a in a in an inappropriate manner. 
I could be wrong. I'm, I'm just trying to think. Did Salim Malik later support um, my getting that he he had informed the umpire that he was moving the field? Because see, I think, as Sohib rightly said, it, it became a simple thing, right? I think David Capel was a fielder. I could be wrong. Um, who was moved. And, uh, you know, you need to, I mean, once a bowler comes in, you move the field. The umpire has every reason to stop it. And Gatting took it very personally, saying, oh, the umpire called me a cheat. I think the bad blood was brewing from 1982, where I think this is where the uh, the condescension comes in, right? I think Gatting took it, how dare a Pakistani tells me I'm a cheat when your house is not in order. I mean, you can't have a conversation like that, right? Because if you start to go with an assumption that Pakistan is full of cheats, and you're umpiring his cheat. How dare you question me? I think that's where racism, colonialism, history, everything comes in, right? Because you can't have double standards for individuals or some sort of a moral high ground. I think that's where Shakur Rana got really worked up. And Gatting's uh, uh, response was pretty poor because you can't do finger bagging because cricket is a sport. As a sports captain, you respect the umpire, right? Tradition. There is a tradition. Whether you like it or not, a hand goes up, you walk away. Tuck the bat um, uh, behind your arm and walk away. You don't argue. You don't gesticulate. This is not football. This is not rugby. That's why cricket is it's a cricket. It's a gentleman's game and all. I think from that perspective, for an English captain to behave like that was appalling, poor. Uh, but I think there was, there was a lot of friction between the two teams. I think, in my opinion, had Imran been there, the only thing, it's a what if or a sliding doors moment. Had Imran been there, could he have used his influence to, I don't know, back then it was called Test and County Cricket Board. Could he have um, used the BCCP's influence to talk to TCCB and stop the games? You know, we, they didn't have a day's play, right? It was suspended because Shakurana wouldn't take the field without an apology. Could he have played a better diplomatic role? Well, it's it's hard to speculate. But as, as Sohib said, it was between England, England who took a slight of what Shakurana did. So it was... It was the the onus was on TCCB to back down, which the Pakistanis weren't willing to. So I think it would have been difficult, but there is a grain of truth because Imran was such a diplomat, he was such a popular figure, he was part of the British aristocracy, so to speak. He could have influenced a better, I don't know, uh, uh, meeting between both the parties, but we never know, Sakib. The only reason, uh, the only other recollection I read recently is I don't remember the Bangalore test. Uh, because I saw after you know the conclusion, uh, because we were, we were in school, so we'd come back and watch the remaining days play, which was like less than a couple hours left. But I remember reading somewhere that uh, as the match became heated uh, and so competitive, Miyadad and some of the fielders were very aggressive with the umpires, uh, you know, towards the Indian umpires. And Imran would always, you know, rally the troops, say, you know, uh, back off a bit, or maybe they were playing good cop, bad cop, but that's how teams work. So I think that's the only thing. Maybe you're right. He was a bit diplomatic, or maybe he could have intervened. But it's yeah, it was a little odd that uh, when I read Sanford mentioned that, that's why I brought this digression. So now the larger question here is for both of you: the shadow of Imran. So when Ahmed Nakbi was on the podcast, he was saying like Imran is like such a figure. The team of the '90s after Imran's retirement was actually playing the cricket they associate Imran with that all the aggression and all the bravado and all the, you know, leading from the front and, you know, all that stuff actually happened in the nineties when Imran was gone. It could have been a process that was preached under his captaincy and it came to full circle. But uh, my question is the legend is so big. Do we give him more? Uh, Of course, 
he's an overachiever i don't want to short change the guy a bit but is there you know with the legend why get facts in the way when the story is so good do we credit imran with more in pakistan success or or every credit given to him could be backed by stats so i don't know common question if you get my point vijay you can go first and sohib you can be second sure i think imran is a great legend right whichever way you look at it right so his personality the way he conducted himself his baritone so i mean again someone would say psycho babel but that's what he was he was a personality right uh, the way he played it in county cricket in england new south wales over here but i think let's let's look at it right so he's got a tremendous record uh, he defeated india in india he said he wanted to beat india in india and he did that uh, in the bangalore test on a on a pitch uh, which was not easy and uh, his tactics i think in my opinion you could look at all the factors but in the end it was imran's superior captaincy over kapil dev i mean he asked meanda to open in the second innings uh, he you know ikbal kasim being a left hander who came in as a night watchman um, i think those small parts that imran played i think that was decisive in pakistan being able to beat india in india and then in england uh, the way he bowled at headingly taking 10 plus uh, 10 for uh he was not just a tactically brilliant captain he led from the front and he led from the front he bowled really well so beating england in england then again we talk about in the caribbean in 88 he was done he was he was retired and then he came back please remember he had a big foot injury going into the border test border oval he had to take so many painkillers he took 11 wickets on a wicket where which was not an easy wicket guyana is not an easy wicket it was a flat wicket and he used reverse swing prodigious, prodigiously by the time the the caravan moved to the, the queen's park oval in trinidad he couldn't even bowl fast he was pretty much a a, a fastish in swing bowler but he still took a lot of wickets so to me he led from the front um he was he was not just a captain who was tactically good he was a, a player who contributed enormously and he played for 2 3 years just as a, a batsman when at the peak of his powers in 82 83 he took 40 wickets against india what 13.95 the famous average including that you know infamous from an indian perspective famous from a pakistani perspective that uh, big reverse swinging spell at the national stadium in karachi for which a lot of indian old timers still have nightmares about they could still wake up in the middle of the night with cold sweat but then he had that you know shin injury you know he, that ruled him out for a couple of years so he was just he played as a batsman and as a captain so he he was larger than life and he did so much but i think the most important thing when you talk about captaincy in on field right imran was a late bloomer in everything uh, as as uh, sohib talked about in 1970 when he didn't have a great run up we have looked at some of his old videos his bowling action was very different uh, he developed i mean he's one of the great cricketers who developed uh, into something great i mean world series cricket he had uh, john snow's influence was brilliant in the early 80s he's probably the quickest bowler in the world because jeff thompson was in the vein and he was quicker than even the west indian bowlers right and that's where the big regret is if in 83 pakistan and west indies had played a series in the west indies that would have been a, a mouth watering prospect now coming back to captaincy so he had admitted that i mean he was the one who first really thought through having a leg spinner in the middle overs of a one day game so he was such a big fan of abdul qadir but guess what he took a while to understand how to place the fielders for someone like kadir uh, so he had admitted it right um, you know the famous story i mean one thing i'd like to talk about imran is in 
they played the semi final the second semi first semi final india had beaten england at old trafford the second semi final was between pakistan and west indies at the oval uh, pakistan had barely scored about 180 odd um, in 60 overs which was not enough um, they took an early wicket of haynes and in walked walked in within richards i think imran had set a field which was like a silly mid on silly point forward shot like a slip there were four fielders surrounding vivin richards and vivin richards had to look at kadir and imran saying do you, do you even know what you're to, doing so that was he was a very aggressive captain i mean of course pakistan lost the game decisively i believe ijaz fakir dropped a catch uh, at silly point early on of kadir's uh, ball uh, but richards being richards scored an 80 yard so imran had that uh, you know he was ahead of the time in terms of using leg spin as an attacking weapon in one day cricket and even in test cricket right i think bob willis famously said in 78 or 79 that maybe spinners are going out of fashion even in test matches to win because of the rise of west indian quicks was seen as a new template but imran was still using kadir as a weapon in test matches so to me he was the proper traditional captain the way ian chapel captain the way richie beno captain uh, the ray the way uh, ray illingworth captain right? lloyd was a little different right so he was the the proper uh, you know proper english way of australian way of doing captaincy so i would say that i think the most important thing from imran's perspective as soheb uh, talked about pakistan had a lot of infighting right you know you know there was karachi lahore faction there was punjabi sindhi faction uh, you know they used to fight they used to party uh, they used to do all kinds of thing but imran was that one person who could bring people in uh, together right and once they played for imran they did very well i think the other thing fair to look at it i i, I don't necessarily agree with amir nakwi he's a good guy i mean on twitter i know him he follows me and stuff imran knew his cards very well as a, a bowling captain he was very aggressive was he makram he brought in abdul qadir as an attacking king he used himself when it came to batting he was a little conservative you look at the type of players he groomed amir malik harun rashid before that um you know shoaib mohammed even salim yusuf as a keeper right more for his batting so he liked this nuggety um what do we say good defensive gutsy players even ramiz raja right ijaz ahmed right he he built a core of these players if you look at the stats some of them don't have a great record but under imran they had those flashes of brilliance because that's what you need from captains right uh, you you need them to perform and then when they were off the ball he would just drop them bring them some bring someone else in so i don't think imran's template was score 300 runs in a day and then bowl them out bowling was aggressive batting was a little more conservative and one more final point i'd like to talk about is there was this famous guy called masood anwar um masood anwar was a, a, he was there as a, a left arm orthodox spinner he played in the 1990 lahore test match um i don't think he, i mean that is a test match that pakistan saved and masood anwar uh, as a night watchman he scored with 37 i believe and imran played another big part uh, 50 or not out to save the test match guess what imran never selected him imran had a very very clear head there was no emotion yeah you saved a test match but your job was to bowl i don't think you are a bowler i'm relying on and you talked a little bit about abdul qadir was iqbal qasim right he had used qasim of course javed mian's advice as well so some would argue that javed mian that was tactically better but imran had all the other qualities his tactics got improved as he went along and his overall person management and his ability to manage the board get the type of players he wanted to groom i think that's where uh, to me he was a true i think more than captain yeah he was a great captain i think imran was a true leader when it came to cricketing uh, ability i think that's something that's very hard to replicate
And Iqbal Qasim never played a test after the Bangalore test. That's true. And I mean, interestingly, Iqbal Qasim's wife is on Twitter. She and I had an interaction. I casually said that in one of the threads that uh, Iqbal Qasim's text record, technically record, stats-wise, better than that of Abdul Qadir. And someone tagged her and she said, Vijay, you're absolutely right. My husband was uh, uh, slighted, something like that. I didn't know how to react. I just said, thank you, ma'am. Because, I mean, I don't, I mean, your wife or a mother is never going to be, you know, uh, what do I say, objective when it comes to analysis. So I let it go. Uh, Yeah, that's very true about Iqbal Qasim. So, so have your analysis on whatever Vijay said, if you want to add more context, do you see it the way he does about Imran's legacy? Because the, like I said, not to repeat myself, the shadow keeps getting bigger. <laughs> well, actually, what Vijay said is, uh, sums it up. I, I don't think I can add anything more to it. I would have said the same things because I've, I mean, I've interviewed Imran eight times in the 1980s for publication. I uh, was very close to him. I understood the way he led and is exactly that. He was an inspiring leader. You see, the difference was that when Imran built his team in 1982, he got rid of the seniors very quickly. Zahir Abbas left after three years. Majid Khan, he dropped in his very first series that he played against England. And uh, Basim Bari left, retired in 1983. So what happened was that the gap between Imran and his team was about an average of seven or eight years. So the, Imran was leading uh, youngsters. And he would pick 18 and 19-year-olds. And Zamam Haki paid picked from the Nets. Akib Javed, he picked from the Nets. Uh, Wakar Yunus, he picked up after watching him bowl in a final. So he would pick up these cricketers right from 1982 onwards. And he was a father figure to them. And he had such a fantastic personality uh, and superiority complex that the players got uh, this feeling that, you know, whatever Imran says is written in stone. And secondly, Imran had more clout in selection than Javed Miyadad. Any player that Imran wanted, he got. He didn't even discuss with selectors. He was sometimes announced in the media that I'm, you know, this boy is going to play. And the selectors would say, what? So, so what happened is that Imran, let's, uh, as a captain, was head and shoulders in terms of performance and in terms of age above that. And he kept a bit of distance from the players as well. As I said, he would travel separately at times on tours. Niyadad actually you know, would sit down and play cards with even the junior most player, you know. And uh, he would go out and have lunch or whatever. So he was one of the guys. So the people treated Miyadad very closely as a friend and they could be frank with him and they could disagree with him. With Imran, they dare not disagree. Imran, although was a very open-minded player, honestly, as uh, mentioned here, I've also, uh, I'm aware Iqbal Qasim told me himself that he had no plans to play Bangalore Test in fact, he had asked for a day off to visit a family somewhere in India. And uh, on the eve of the match, uh, Imran told him, no, you're playing. So uh, he unpacked his bags and he went and played the Bangalore test. So uh, Imran could, would always have ears for, for Budassan Azhar, for Abdul Qadir, for Javed Miyadad, even for Vaseem Akram. And Imran also uh, was a leader who threw his people in the deep end. 
let me give you an example again from the 1988 series. Uh, Richards was batting, Wasim Akram was bowling, and Imran told Wasim Akram, bowl him a bouncer and knock his cap off. And Wasim Akram looked at him and he said, what? He said, no, just keep bowling at him because we need to get him out. Just keep bowling bouncers at him. Wasim Akram responded, well, he's the captain and my captain is saying, so fine. And in one of the instances, he actually just grazed Richard's cap and Richard was furious. So at the end of the play, when they were in the dressing room, some, there was a knock on the door of the Pakistani dressing room. And someone came to Wasim Akram and says, Richard is outside, he's asking for you. And Wasim Akram said, what? Me? Anyway, he went up and Richard was there with his pads on, but without his shirt, holding a bat in his hand. And he said, come out. And Wasim Akram got shit scared. Yeah. And he went back to Imran and he said, Viv is outside and he's got a bat in his hand. He's angry at me. Imran said, well, go and deal with him yourself. You see, uh, it wasn't that Imran was putting him out or shirking away from the instructions. Wasim said, you asked me to bowl. He said, yeah, but you bowled the bouncer. Now go and face him. So Wasim Akram went out. He calmed Richards down. And Richards said, don't ever bowl that bouncer to me again with the intent of hitting me. Now, what did Imran do? Imran actually did not micromanage. He, he knew he would retire in a couple of years' time. He might not play the next match. So he wanted to tell the players to go out and become men. Fight your own battles. Believe in yourself. Like, uh, for instance, he would advise, but then he would not, you know, run the issue for them. So Imran was an inspiring leader. Uh, he would exercise four hours a day. He would be in the gym. He would be running. I once interviewed him way after he had retired, you know, uh, for, uh, for a TV channel. And he said, come over at nine. And uh, I went there at his home in Zaman Park. And he had just returned from a jog. He was, you know, there for two hours exercising. And that was years and years after he had retired. So Imran was a fitness fanatic. And he made sure that everybody rose to their potential. And he led by example, if I can exercise for four hours, all of you had better exercise. All of you had be better go to the gym. So that was the leader. I mean, rest, uh, Vijay has said, I would have said the same thing. So I don't want to take up too much time. But that's the way Imran was. He led by example. And he threw the guys at the deep end. And he said, fight your own battles. And he made you believe in your abilities. Actually, it's a great anecdote about Akram and Richards because I was reading uh, the series scorecard. Richards didn't play the first test, but then the next two tests, Vaseem Akram got him three out of four innings. So, Vijay, we haven't talked about Akram, you know, who was coming into his own. He was already an established member of the team and was bowling really fast back then. Do you remember his battles with Richards or are there any other matchups in the Pakistan-West Indies clash of the late 80s? that you think we should talk about in this podcast, a particular like, say, Haynes versus Imran or uh, yeah. Akram versus Richards or Miyada versus Marshall, anything that fascinated you or you remember reading about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think to to Sohib's point, right, he dropped Majid Khan and he brought in Mansoor Akhtar uh, in England in 82. And Majid Khan, you know, his cousin, family member. So Imran never showed any such favoritism to his family or something that allowed people to have a lot of respect for him. And I think this, because it's almost like a hagiography of Imran in terms of how we're praising, there was also a bit of a problem because 
he spunt on probably Harun Rashid or Mansoor Akhtar didn't pay off. I think there's one criticism, which is like a post facto, is because Imran was picking people off the streets and making these things, and Zahid Fazal, right? Our Indians would remember in 91 from Lahore, he flew in the day, two days before the final, he got 98 not out in the final. The point is because his instinct was so good, he, he understood the game and he could influence stakeholders to get it done. Not everyone was as influential as he was. Probably it didn't allow Pakistan to develop a better system. That's one of the criticism post-facto that's come from the Pakistani circles because not everyone could have that same power. Now, coming back to your point, uh, Sakib, absolutely. Pakistan, Western Indies contest had provided some great things. We have to talk about Abdul Qadir, right? Because... We, I mean, I, I think I mentioned in the Shane Warne pod. We watched a lot of Shane Warne during the era of Channel 9, good TV coverage with people who understood leg spin, like Mark Taylor, Ian Chappell, Richie Veno, commentating and telling us the art. Unfortunately, Kadir played in an era where the, the TV was not that great. Not all games were televised live all over the world. Uh, cricket from Pakistan, uh, some of the games were not even televised. It was a great series in the Caribbean. And the commentary wasn't up to the level that you would have expected. So Kadir bowling around the wicket and over the wicket. He played an instrumental role in Pakistan having the dominance because I remember in that era, Gordon Greenwich had a bit of a time, tough time against uh, Kadir, uh, even Vivian Richards. So Imran used to employ Kadir early in a lot of games, tests or one days, and Kadir was a trump card. He wasn't as accurate as Vaughan, but he was still posing enough threat both over and around the wicket. Even this footage that we got from the Caribbean in the Barbados, 88, he bowls a fair bit around the wicket, even in the 53 all-out, infamous 53 all-out for the West Indies in Faisalabad. So, I mean, luckily I watched a little bit of that um, um, on PTV back then. I think Wazim Akram, I could be right, Vivian Richards had talked about, I think the game they played in Hobart, was it uh, in 84-85? I could be wrong on that. Um, that was the fastest spell he had ever faced um, from anyone. So when Vivian Richards was played a lot of fast bowling, who's never worn a helmet in test cricket or one-day cricket or international cricket, when he considers that as the fastest, I think I would take Vivian Richards' word, right? That's that's important. And also, Wazim Akram has bowled a lot around the wicket, um, uh, I mean, to Vivian Richards, and he troubled him a bit. So some of those spells, uh, both from Pakistan 86 or the one from Caribbean 88, would have been nice to watch ball by ball. Uh, the other thing is Imran, if you look at even Imran, till I think Imran was always an in-swing bowler, right? Ball used to come in. Uh, till he started to get the ball uh, go out, he couldn't trouble someone like Vivian Richards. So he stuck ball and then the one that went away troubled him. I'm told there was a very brilliant spell in Trinidad uh, in the second test of 88. There were Imran and Richards had that battle royale. I think that was a six or seven hour spell where Richards was a bit struggling in the first innings and Imran bowled a brilliant spell. I've uh, read about it, but unfortunately, we have no footage of that uh, thing. The second innings, he got 100. So that would have been a uh, brilliant, uh, you know, brilliant thing to watch. So there, I mean, as I said, Abdul Qadir and all those things. And also, uh, um, those who haven't watched, they should go and watch the 77, 78, this 43-minute footage of the Sabina Bak test because even that footage has got so much, right? You've got Harun Rashid playing some imperious drives. You you would know why Imran rated someone like him because playing those backfoot punches of the Caribbean quicks is a talent, but he couldn't develop his game. Uh, so I think that'll be good. The other thing I would like to say is Majid Khan because Majid Khan had played a, a brilliant innings in the 76-77 series when he scored that brilliant 100 in Georgetown. Uh, that's an innings that revived them in terms of uh, getting back to 
uh, that series. Uh, we don't have any uh, footage of that uh, from that series. Uh, if there is anything available, um, that'll be good. Uh, so some of these things, these are some of the things. And also don't forget, uh, let's not forget the World Cup uh, things. 1975, the first semifinal, we talk about uh, West Indies being dominant, but they would have very easily lost the semifinal, right? Um, so basically, uh, to me, uh, that last wicket partnership uh, that saved West Indies in the 1975 World Cup semifinal uh, was such a thing. And even in the 79 World Cup, uh, Zahira Bas and Miandad had the partnership. So, I mean, Pakistan West Indies cricket is littered or, you know, with so much of history. Um, and also, one other thing is when there was a one low scoring series, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves in 8081 in Pakistan when Viv Richards was at his absolute best. It was not like big hundred. He scored eighties and seventies. We don't have a lot of footage from that. We got something now. I think that's something also I would like to reminisce. So there's there's a lot of memories. Uh, great bowling, um, and also see one thing. One final thing. Ramiz Raja, the only six he has ever hit in his Test cricket was against Patrick Patterson. I think they had thirty-two to chase, thirty to chase in that uh, first Test in 1988. Uh, Mudazan Azhar was LBW in the second or third ball, and after that, Patterson, everything was short. Uh, Ramiz Raja went for a hook. It was a top edge, went way over Dujon's head for a six. The only six I'd ever hit. I think they scored Shoaib Mohammed and Ramiz Raja scored those 30 odd runs in three overs. I'd like to watch those three overs because similarly, Dennis Lilly had a spell like that against Pakistan in 76 77 when they had another 30 runs to chase. So, yeah, you know, some of those great things I would like to watch if footage is available, Sakib. Yeah, that's uh, great stuff for any listener, uh, including me that we can go and, you know, start searching for those on YouTube. So, so hey, let me bring you in because, you know, you've covered the series. You've been a broadcaster. Like you said, you've done eight interviews with Imran. Gosh, that should be a podcast by itself. I should procure, you know, maybe book your calendar to do it sometime. But uh, now let's bring in, you know, as we close on this podcast, a few more minutes and I'll let you both go. So in your capacity, when you were covering these uh, uh, cricket series, uh, talk about the West Indies players. How were they received in Pakistan, Richards, Marshall, you know, Greenwich Haynes, they're absolute superstars back in the 80s. Did you ever get a chance to speak to them? Are there any memories that you could, you want to share with the listeners here from the 86 or the 87 Alliance Cup or the 86 series? Uh, any Anything on the West Indies players that you would like to share here with me, Vijay? And let the me listeners? tell you. Yeah, let me tell you, the West Indian players were hugely popular with the Pakistanis. Hugely popular. I mean, like in the 1974-75 series, uh, when uh, West Indies came and played Pakistan, I didn't want Kali Charan to get out. I mean, you know, I, I wanted him to play and play even against Pakistan, you know, uh, because the West Indian players were extremely friendly. Uh, I got to meet a couple of them in the 86-87 series because I was working. I started my job, so I hardly, uh, you know, uh, got time to meet anybody or take interviews. but. Uh, they were extremely popular. Uh, also, I mean, like, take Darren Semi. Darren Semi of current time. I mean, he half, half the time he lives in Pakistan. He says, I'm Peshawar Zalmi. He wears Pakistani clothes and all that. That's how the West Indians have always been when it's come to Pakistan. As I said, there's a special bond. There's special camaraderie. There's a special respect for each other's culture, each other's players. And they like each other's food and they go out together. Uh, so, uh, I would say that uh, the West Indian players were 
have always been extremely well received, even their fast bowlers. And let me tell you, for example, the 1980-81 series, uh, when uh, a brick was thrown at the Pakistani fan, I think it was by Sylvester Clark, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Sylvester Clark, yeah, that's correct. The Pakistani, yeah, the Pakistani people actually had sympathy for Clark. And they they told, the, uh, I mean, a lot of, we used to discuss among ourselves, and we said, well, why was the guy and the spectator stand, why did he throw something at Clark in the first place? Because we always felt that the West Indians are... Uh, our comrades in arms when it comes to, uh, you know, playing cricket. And uh, there was a healthy competition between the two. As I said, I told you the results that uh, uh, Pakistan was one of those teams that, you know, were consistently beating West Indies in crucial games, all coming close, like that 1979 final, I mean, semi-final in the World Cup. And, uh, you know, we came so close to beating them because of that 166-run partnership between Zaheer and Majid. And then in the 1975 World Cup, yes, that last wicket partnership by Derek Murray and Andy Roberts. I mean, they added 64. Otherwise, we would have probably knocked them out of the World Cup. So, 75-79. Uh, but after that, West Indies just blew us away in the one-day series. And then we would actually wish that we don't play them. But... Uh, coming to your question, uh, the players have always been very well received. They've been very, very gentle people. Uh, Michael Holding even came back as commentator and he mixed around with us. I sat with him as a, in the media box. He would talk about uh, the demise of West Indian cricket and he would tell me he, he, that was the first time I heard from Holding and he said, well, one of the reasons that the West Indians cricket is on the demise is that we're tall people. And uh, a lot of us are whisked away to play basketball in Florida. So, uh, the, uh, the Caribbean youth uh, who would trans, uh, you know, play uh, cricket now get picked up at 18 years of age and paid tons more money to play on weekends in Florida. So, why would anyone want to play cricket? So, you know, uh, yeah, we discussed... Uh, very openly uh, cricket with each other, their media people, uh, their ex-cricketers, and very, very hugely popular with Pakistanis all the time. Sure. And you recently worked with Ramiz Raja in the PSL, and you know him well, and you quoted at the top of the show like about, some, uh, about the 88 series. Are there any other anecdotes that you want to give to the listeners about the rivalry with West Indies, be it the Ramiz, be it Imran himself, or be it Shweb Muhammad or anyone? Because that stuff really, you know, elevates the podcast experience for diehards who will tune in here to listen for a two-hour-long conversation. Because in the end, the players are the, you know, if you get something from the horse's mouth, I think that will be fitting. So, hey, was the parting comments from your side? Well, yeah, well, not too many anecdotes. But, uh, yeah, what uh, Ramiz said about the 1988 series was the fact that uh, one of the things he said was that the spirit of the cricket that was played between the two teams was tremendous and that the, the West Indian players hardly slashed at him, uh, hardly slashed at anybody else. So the, the respect was there for each other's cricket and the respect was there as cricketers themselves, like Wasim Akram knocking off that, uh, you know, cap or trying to. 
and uh, other than that he said that uh, imran had a lot of faith in a cricketer by the name of amir malik he even brought him back in the third test i think he played and uh, rami said that imran used to say that you know he plays like barry richards and which was a huge compliment for somebody like amir malik but uh, other than that yeah uh, not too many stories uh, that i got to hear uh, but uh, basically what ramiz always said even before when we used to talk about the 1988 series that they went there and they were told by imran that we're going to win and uh, he said that everyone was in awe of imran all the time as a captain as a leader and uh, abdul qadir was one of those uh, who imran believed can help beat west indies because west indies have traditionally been uh, weaker against spin perhaps they don't play that much and uh, a lot of the time the st- strategy was imran and qadir versus west indies in every way because wasim akram was carrying a bit of an injury as well i think he basically came into his own in the th- third test otherwise he had some groin injuries uh, but uh, yeah not much other than the fact that uh, the series was played in a hugely competitive way and there was a tremendous mutual respect by, by the players hey vijay so parting comments from you any any topic you think we didn't cover or any topic you would want to elaborate about this rivalry where does it sit uh, in the realm of things that you know in the cricket you have seen so floor is yours as parting comments yeah i think i think a lot of been, lot has been covered in the last couple of hours i think the my main point is uh, it's a great rivalry unfortunately there's very limited footage that's available uh, especially from the caribbean which is a bit of a shame uh, but i think pakistan had the tools to hurt them right uh, leg spin i mean if you look at it bob holland won the 84 85 cg test uh, against west indies uh, that was the last test they lost before they lost the faisla by the one which was again abdul qadir so kind of tells you that leg spin was a weapon that could be used against them and imran's role as a and reverse swing right i think the one thing reverse swing i always thought that reverse swing was the one that unseated west indies because Carl Hooper had said very much about the 1990 Lahore test, his second hundred after scoring a debut hundred in India in, in Calcutta in 87. He said the ball was swinging at pace and he felt the outfield was a bit parched and uh, uh, the, the boundaries, uh, the hoardings were like, there were no uh, boundary line, which means the ball was thudding into the, uh, the hoardings and stuff. But I think Andy Roberts had recently said something like, no, even in 76, 77, when Pakistan came to West Indies, we were reverse swinging the ball we didn't call it as reverse swing back then he said we used to keep the shan of one side and uh, you know keep the other side dry and we were doing it so i think there was some criticism in the past that pakistan used leg spin and reverse swing to effectively beat west indies but someone like andy robert saying we were reverse swinging there is no excuse that kind of tells you to soheb's point there's a good amount of mutual respect i think pakistan might not have matched west indies in terms of pace but they had the skills in their pace bowling with Wazim Akram and Imran to go with the, the guiles of uh, Abdul Qadir to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the only other point is, the only regret, had they played a series in 83 or 84 uh, before Holding and Ghana had left, that would have been brilliant. A couple of anecdotes. Um, so, Heb talked about 
how Frank Worrell missed the tour of Pakistan in 58-59. Yes, he was pursuing, if I'm right, economics, masters or bachelors, I don't know, in the University of Manchester. Very interestingly, Michael Holding had never played a test match against Pakistan, never. Um, I think 80-81 he was injured. But guess what? When Pakistan went to West Indies in 76-77, he took a break and he did a four-year course. Guess what? In Bachelor of Information Technology. Information Technology in 1979. Michael Holding, the genuine great fast bowler, taking a break to study to become a computer programmer or system analyst, whatever it is. I think that's interesting that this was just before Packer. When that series was getting played out, uh, the Packer negotiations were going on. And that also helped both the teams to become bigger than what they were. So, yeah, this, those were different times. Uh, more amateur, less money. Players had to go and study and upskill themselves, unlike the, the current era where they could use the cricketing skills to make a living out of it. So, fascinating rivalry. A rivalry that should be celebrated more. We should have more books about it. Unfortunately, we don't. We should have more footage. We should have more documentaries. Maybe one day those things will start to come out uh, as the YouTube videos start to come out. That's the way I would like to look at it, Sake. No, I think this was perfect. You both didn't need me. I think the kind of history you and the great recall and anecdotes this conversation was, I could have just gone and watched something else and you could have carried this effortlessly without me. I enjoyed every minute of it. And I would like to conclude with an anecdote from the book uh, where, you know, Sanford said, I think in the third test, the Richard pretty much walked down to the pitch to block Imran and they exchanged words. And then Imran says to Richards, you really love yourself, don't you? And Viv shot back saying, yeah, I learned it from watching you all over the years. So, <laughs> <I've> <laughs> so, I, think, so I think that's like, that's a classic way to let this go. So hey, hopefully <laughs> me and Vijay did justice yeah. to your company and hopefully we can have you back on this podcast. It was oh, uh, no, no, I worth staying it. up. <laughs> yeah, You know, th- there's another thing just before you go, although you've formally closed the broadcast, because there was a couple of things that, uh, you know, didn't get mentioned. Uh, you know, we talk about the rivalry. Viv Richards uh, was, uh, you know, except for uh, one test in 1988, he uh, hardly got a lot of runs in 1980 when he came here, 1985. So good was the bowling. Uh, and Pakistani batting, despite Javed Mirad being there and scoring those 200s. But basically, if you look at the fact that, uh, you know, they played about nine tests. 3 in 86, 87, 3 in 88, 89, 3 in 1990. And I was just reading some of the stats that were put up. In four of the nine tests, the first innings difference was 25 or under. And only one of 35 innings exceeded 400. Uh, That indicates how much the ballers put in the efforts against two teams that had probably the best batsman in the 1980s. That is how competitive those series were. Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to let this go. And hopefully the listeners here have a lot of food for thought. And, you know, you both shared incredible anecdotes and uh, sequential recalls. So, yeah, again, great food for thought. I immensely enjoyed it. Thank you, Vijay. Thank you, Soheb. We should do this again on another series sometime soon. Thank you, Sakeb. Thank you, Vijay. Lovely talking to you. Thank you, Sahib. Thank you, Sakeb, for having me again. Uh, thank you.